Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, June 19, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Everybody have a, a fruitful and beneficial weekend. It was all right. I'm telling you, we should begin the show every day um, with clips of Joe Biden and John Fetterman. <laughs> Did you see that? Well, I mean, these guys confuse yeah. the English language uh, better than I do. I, I've said some crazy things. God save the queen, man. <laughs> Where'd that come from? But, but was, that's not as humorous as the uh, the answer given by not the White House press secretary, but some someone was there representing or represent, a representative of the White House was there in the room. And someone off the record asked this person, why did he say that? And the person answered, and I quote, I have no idea. I mean, I have no idea. I, I, that, that's I mean, There's a lot more there. Than you imagine when someone off the record says, I have no idea. I mean, you know, really and truly, I mean, at the end of the speech, he says, you know, God save the queen, man. Mm. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? I mean, God save the queen. Um, and you wonder why we question whether we're in decline or not. A guy from Pennsylvania is, I mean, I, I'm a little bit envious. I mean, I combine words, but I don't think we make them up. I and mean, do you understand what you mean well, I mean, when you're saying something? Yeah, he I, obviously does not. And I think there's a humor associated with, with me saying things, but but he's a United States senator. And or, we were told, maybe, he, I mean, maybe he understands and he just he can't get the well, words I, out. He's I can a relate to that. He's a victim I mean, I, of a stroke. I could certainly relate to speaking a lot and misspeaking. I mean, you don't expect a politician to get everything right. Right. I mean, they speak all yeah, the time. Yeah, this is different than that. Sure. I mean, they, they're, they're speaking a lot. I mean, they say, I mean, you would expect a politician to say, you know, 27% when he meant 37%. They'll get hounded, and then rightfully so, and then they'll issue a correction. Hey, he misspoke. He didn't mean 27. He meant 37%. Uh, percent. But politicians listen a little bit and speak a lot. So you imagine somebody speaks as much as they do. They're going to make mistakes. I mean, they just are. They're going to get some things wrong. Um, 62% of independents said X. No, and that was forty-eight percent. Okay, okay, you're right. Forty-eight. You know, you see where I'm where I'm headed. You can't expect those people to get everything right. Um, but but there's got to be some coherence there. There's got to be some understanding of the, of the English language. You, think. you can't look at one of those. Well, I mean, what is he? You know, what what is what is Bob Dylan singing about today? I don't know. We can't. <laughs> we'll just make it up as we go. Um, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Do want to wish everybody a happy Father's Day. Um. Father's Day is more real to me than Mother's Day because I believe that the science of chromosomes still matter <laughs> and men are men and women are women and men are fathers and women are, are mothers and I certainly admire, appreciate, respect um, everything women do as a mother and contributor to society of the nuclear family and all those other things. But I can't really in the first person understand it. Once again, I admire it. I respect it. But I can't put myself in um, that position. I'm not a female. I'm not a mother. I don't know um, some of the motherly instincts and, and the nurturing aspects of, uh, of motherhood. But I can very well relate to fatherhood and, and what it means to try and be as good a father as you know how. I post something um, early Saturday morning. Got a real early Saturday morning. Uh, went to a birthday party for a buddy of mine. We went to school together. He got his 60th birthday uh, in Charleston. And... Um, Charleston ain't going to be red long. I'll just leave it there. Yeah. Really? Charleston, it's your I observation, huh? Is not going to be. Um, yeah. I mean, I've got this skinny jeans theory. 
I mean, I do. I, I just um, that that's my marker. What percentage of men are wearing skinny jeans? And if the percentage is more than say ten percent, yeah, we're, we're heading to a um to a soft landing when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to um I mean soft literally and figuratively right. if you want to know the truth. But anyway, we're heading to a um um talk, talking about fatherhood and masculinity and um anyway, wake up Saturday morning and uh, and we went to Charleston and uh, paid our respects to a buddy of ours who uh, my wife is a year younger than I. She graduated. Uh, my buddy graduated Hannah Pamplico in 81. I graduated in 82. My wife graduated in 83, but he was my next door neighbor. I mean, he was the guy that I grew up next to. Uh, we rode to school together on alternate days, played football together, played basketball together and baseball together. Um, growing up real quick story. We laughed about this. He had a VW bug and I'm talking about the original, you know, one of the, uh, one of the real hippie Woodstock VW bugs. And, um, this is when nobody wanted a VW bug. You know what I mean? They're, they're cool. Now they're retro, mm-hmm. you know, they, they've got, they, uh, they, they re, uh, what am I saying? I'm trying to say they relaunched the VW at some point in time. And it's got this automatic roof on it. And you know, n- none of this had, I mean, the engine was in the back and, um, you had to jump it off about every other day. Anyway, it was not the envy of the neighborhood, so to speak, but he and I rode to school together in this blue VW bug. That was not cool. I mean, we would have much rather had something else. Anyway, we pulled to a stoplight on our way to school, a little bit foggy. And um, where I come from, believe it or not, every, on, on occasion on your way to school, you'd bump into a backhoe or a tobacco harvester or a log truck. I mean, that was not very sure. uncommon. I mean, you know, in rural America, I mean, there, there were a lot of um, but there were a lot of other sorts of vehicles on the road. Didn't see a lot of Lamborghinis. Um, I don't remember many Mercedes or Ferraris, but but you would. Past the occasional tobacco harvester, moving moving from one field to another, or a log truck on his way to the to the sawmill. Anyway, we pull up the stop sign, and this log truck is coming from Florence toward Pamplico, but it's making a turn on the road that my friend and I lived on. And when the log truck turned, I mean, my family had been in trucking all of its life, building truck beds, so I was familiar with the the inner workings of trucking. So, um, as much as a sixteen year old could be familiar with the inner workies. I knew that my dad made a living doing something with trucks and that's how I got my spending money. So I was, you know, I was, um, I was a friend of truck drivers in the trucking industry in the most self-serving, self-serving way imaginable. But anyway, so the log truck, um, is, is heading toward Pamplico. My friend and I pull up to the stop sign on highway 51, which is the Pamplico highway and the log truck turns left. And when the truck clears us in this VW bug, I remember thinking that trailer's not going to miss us. That's not a real experienced truck driver. And it would not have been uncommon to have a real unexperienced truck driver in the log woods. Um, not many people wake up in life saying, man, I want to be in the log woods for the rest <laughs> of my life. I mean, if you've ever worked in the log woods anyway, um, so the truck makes the turn, the, um, the cab of the truck, the truck itself, it clears us. And we're sitting there, and and I'm saying to myself, that trailer's not going to miss us. I mean, there's no way. It's, it's, it's a little bit foggy and early, and um, but I mean, you, you know what's about to happen. And the truck driver never slowed up. Anyway, the back two axles of the trailer went about uh, not, not just across the bumper of the VW. I'm talking about what we call the hood. Now, the motor's not there because the mm-hmm. motor's in the back, but the hood. And um, it, 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 it went 
so much across the hood of the truck that it picked the the back end. Now, in the country, we'd say it picked the ass end of that VW up <laughs> off the ground. Right. And just kind of boom, just kind of bounced it back down. Well, I mean, the log truck stops, police come. I mean, he was very apologetic. I mean, he obviously didn't mean to, to do it. Last thing he wanted was get in trouble with us or the boss man more than, more than us. But anyway, um, we drove for the next month waiting on an insurance. I say we did. It was his car. Uh, but he drove the next month waiting on an adjuster from the insurance company to, uh, you know, to make everything like it needed to be. And we, we, we would drive home from football practice in that car and the lights would shine. I mean, we're laughing about, you know, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face in front of the car, but if we'd been coon hunting, <laughs> there's another, um, you know, country rural celebration. If we'd been, I mean, the light shining up in the tree. I was thinking about Jerry Clower, you know, shining the light in the tree. Anyway, um, we laughed about stories like that, stories like that. And I'm telling you that there's great beauty to rural America. I mean, there really and truly is great beauty to, I'm not saying there's not beauty in urban America and big city life. I mean, of course, that's a big contributor to the American cause, but we're losing. And we talked a lot about that. Um, we, we talked a lot of Sunday morning. We all got together. We talked a lot about, you know, um, talked about the Senate. Uh, they, these have political interests. Friends of mine have political interests. They know I was in politics, do this for a living. They're always asking me, hey, what's your opinion of this? Or I heard you the other day talking about that. And uh, kind of encouraging to me, Rev, mm -hmm. about six or eight listen online. Oh, really? You know, guys that I went to school nice. with live in Greenville, Charleston, Columbia. We all gather together um, down there. But um, but we're talking about the Senate, you know, and how the South Carolina State Senate, the, um, the lawsuit, uh, might have been Griggs, I can't think of what case it was, but the lawsuit that usurped the authority of the state's constitution and 46 senators, 46 counties, and, and my notion that we're going to have about six counties in the next census that dominate the way we govern ourselves, not the house. The house will be a little bit different, but, um, you know, we need one Senator per County. That would be a better way to do it. Kind of like the U S Senate. I mean, Vermont's got as many senators in the, uh, in the U S Senate as California, as California does. Um, it's just kind of a reflective time, but we talked a lot about being dads and, uh, you know, fathers and, and, you know, we, we kind of had this agreement that toxic masculinity has become kind of the catchphrase of the American left. Got to rid yourself of these, um, you know, the, the, these, these maniacal, diabolical, full-blooded, full-throttled, you know, males, those, those testosterone-filled creatures are, you know, devastating to the economy, devastating to the environment, uh, don't respect or adhere to the, to the social norms that have now been so established. And, and I just felt compelled to put something on Facebook uh, about my dad, but, but, but about masculinity in general and the fact that we have um, bought into this you know, toxic masculinity is bad. I'm going to tell you going to be real bad. An America without manliness and masculinity is going to be America in desperate need uh, of guidance and wisdom and, you know, aggressiveness. And um, I, I don't know. We, we just kind of got together and, and said grace over uh, all of those sorts of things. Interesting this, and I don't know why this matters. Maybe it doesn't. Um, there was some partaking of libations going on at this event. Not a single can of Bud Light. Hmm. And these aren't the protesting kind. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they hired someone to do some degree of the catering. And um, it was just interesting to me. They had a, um, an abundance, abundance of beverage, um, but no Bud Light. And, uh, you know, you just wonder where we are in this protesting age, in this, um, you know, um, the consumer speaks with his wallet. 
rather than calling into a into a talk show. I believe this about Bud Light. And I actually told my buddies this that we're talking about because, once again, you do the political show. What do you think about such and such? I said, man, I'll tell you what I think Anheuser-Busch did. Take Ford and GM. If Ford builds a better, I mean, if, if Ford's building a better SUV, I'm talking about a midsize SUV. There are a lot of those on the road. And, and Rev gets mad with Ford because Ford did something that he doesn't socially or culturally agree with to the point that Rev says, I'm, I'm not doing that. That's a big decision. I mean, am I going to stop buying the SUV that I like? I mean, I like the cup holders. I like the console. I like the drivetrain. I like the way they do the interior. I've gotten real comfortable riding um, from point A to point B in, in this vehicle. It's going to be a complicated change. Rev's going to kind of, he's going to get real ticked off with, with one company or the other. And, and I mean, all these older manufacturers have these, you know, ESG scores and DEI scores and all this. But but Rev's a Ford man or a Chevrolet man or a Toyota man or a or a Nissan, whatever, whatever your 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 preference is. But but it's a complicated transition. I mean, it's hard to say, man. I'm I, you know I, I I don't want to buy that Ford because they made me mad. But, but I don't like the way Chevrolet does this, or I don't like the way Toyota does this, or I'm real comfortable with this. But but in, in the in the world of domestic light beers, I mean, there's a take two um, steps to the well, left I mean, in the, the back cooler. of the convenience store. Yeah. There's a cooler with this kind, and right beside it is a cooler that that is 99% the same. I mean, it does. I mean, okay, it's got a little difference of taste, or a little different carb, or a little different calorie, but it's not. Uh, you know, one kind of interior, one kind of drivetrain, or one kind of ladder rack, or one whatever. Well, you know, I don't like the way the doors open. You know, on the Ford, or the Chevrolet, or the Toyota. But but you've you've made you made it Anheuser Busch underestimated in my decision how easy it would be for people to make a different choice. I mean, they just I, I just think they made a grave error in saying, hey, they're you know if they if they've been loyal to us, they've been loyal to us for a reason. And they'll remain loyal to us. Well, they will. And I think if it were cars or if it were, I mean, I, you know, sneakers, I mean, you know, things that we use a lot, you, you, you got to really make me mad because I got to fundamentally rethink this decision. Well, that can of beer, there ain't a lot of thinking. I mean, there's a domestic light beer and right beside it, guess what? There's another brand of domestic light beer and right beside it, there's another brand of domestic light beer. And I saw in, um, in the Wall Street Journal Saturday, might have been Friday. Friday, I mean, this twenty-five percent trend line seems to be holding, and that, that's that's a big deal. I mean, if it's twenty-five percent across the country, I have no idea what it is in the South. I mean, you got to believe it's less than that in in places that are less sensitive to you know to cultural norms or or cultural conservatism. I mean, I think when you say cultural conservatism, the South would be a higher percentage than. The Northwest, the Midwest would probably be a higher percentage than the West Coast. Um, and I don't have a breakdown of what that is. I just thought it was interesting um, that, that these who aren't really the protesting kind, uh, that there were four or five different brands, but that was not one um, in particular. Don't know what that means. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have a hand in making the choice of, of who gets what, but I just, just found that kind of interesting. Uh, in closing, happy Father's Day to all the dads who do the best day you know how. Um, I, I've said this and I'll say this again to me, cause I'm not a mother. I don't know what the mother son relationship is. I don't know what the mother daughter relationship is. The father son relationship in my humble opinion is the most complicated human experience on, on earth. I mean, I, I really mean that. I mean, I, 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 you know, I had a dad 
I am a dad, and I know how complicated it can get. And I look at it this way, but I can't speak for others. My dad was my hero and the ghost that haunts every day of my life. How do you, how do you be both? I mean, I don't know. I don't know, but he is. And I probably suspect to some degree my two sons feel the same way, the same way about me. It's just a complicated, complicated existence. And once again, um, how does your hero haunt every day that you live? I, I don't know. I don't know. But in my case, that's exactly the way uh, that I feel. Happy Father's Day. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few seconds. You know, the one thing I was trying to explain in, in, in the Facebook post I put out, the one thing I was trying to articulate, don't know if I did it well, I'm not opposed. I mean, I, I see a lot of people, women in particular, he's a sweet man. Uh, he's a gentle man. He's a great man. He's a honorable man. He's a decent man. I mean, I want to be those things. I just want to be sweet, but I mean, anyway, I want to be all those, all those other things. But, but, I, but I think masculinity has to be a little bit unbridled. I mean, it does. I mean, I, th- I think masculine, and that goes back. I mean, I know I've had this complicated argument about vegetarians and smoking weed and c- kind of inhibiting the human experience. Um, I do believe that that we've got to let masculinity be a part of who we are. I, I still, I mean, I just think it's such an essential ingredient, and it's so interesting to me. How many women commented on that Facebook post? Kind of, amen. You better believe it. Uh, I think women m- more than men wish that society was not trying to squelch masculinity at the rate it is. And I do believe that there's an intentional effort to kind of tamper uh, masculinity because masculinity by its nature is a little bit rambunctious. It's hard for government to control. Sure, but it's a little bit, I mean, doesn't it embody or represent disobedience, nonconformity? Sure sure does. Um, You know, I I said it in the post. My, My dad smoked cigars, drank whiskey, drove fast, but he would tear up at a moment's notice. He had a heart as big as... As big as um, I mean, he was a kind and decent man, but but he was very masculine, and I think setting that example for young men. I mean, if if fathers don't teach their their boys, I mean, fathers have to be daddies to daughters as well. I mean, that's complicated enough, expensive too. Um, <laughs> it's, it's much easier to I'll tell your, your son no than it is your daughter. I can attest to that. If your son wants something, it's much easier to say, "Shut up, you don't need that." <laughs> <laughs> right but if right. your daughter wants Daddy. something just as outrageous you're like well i mean let's let's talk about this how much is it can we not find it on another site cheaper you know at another at another store cheaper so it's unbelievably complicated and um and when my wife and daughter start at it i like no and and, and my daughter will look at me or my you know wife will look at me and i'm like nope 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 nope, nope. y'all y'all started that y'all figured out i don't want to get in the middle of that because before you know it you know, they're both turning their, their guns on me. You know, I, I'm the guy that uh, <laughs> kind of in, intervenes in that. But but I just I just think masculinity and, and fatherhood, I think fatherhood cannot be absent of masculinity. We can't have but so many sweet dads, so many proper dads, so, so many conforming dads. I mean, I understand some men's nature is to be more conforming and, and less rambunctious, and I accept that. I'm not saying... Go, go out and rob banks and, you know, beat people up. I'm not arguing that. But there's got to be some independence. And I think masculinity embodies that independence, that spirit that, that I think we need. I mean, I think it's biblical. I mean, I think the, some of the great men of the Bible were, were nonconformist and, and very um, <sighs> opposing of authority. I mean, you could argue, you know, you want to go down, you could argue Jesus was a zealot. 
uh, to some degree. Uh, but but I, I just, you know, in, in celebrating fatherhood, I, I wanted to make it clear that masculinity must be a part. And I'm not a social scientist. I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist or a, or a psychologist. I don't know the condition of the human brain or mind or body or soul. I just believe that we're drifting off into a world that celebrates uh, man, manhood in, in a way that I just don't think is healthy for the overall um, good of, of society. And I was thinking about, you know, how many, how many college courses. I mean, let's say this. If men, if masculine men don't teach boys how to be masculine men when they grow up, who does? Who teaches a boy how to be a man? The government? Academia? The internet? I mean, proper culture in society? I, I mean, I'm just asking a question. I mean, if, 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 if boys have this ah, inherent capacity to be masculine and society says, you don't want to be that, I mean, that, that leads to trouble. I mean, that, that leads to rant, you know, that, that leads to uh, opposing the status quo. And it's far more easy to, to conform and go along and get along. You, you got to believe there's something inside, but, but aren't we, I mean, and if you think about it, if a generation or two goes by, wh- where is masculinity learned? I mean, I, I do believe it's inherent. I think all men have some degree of a, a masculine compulse, but, but once again, if it's not celebrated, if it's not endorsed, if it's not embraced, then boys say, well, I mean, it's obvious I don't need to be that. I mean, I need to be what, what, the, what the, you know, I read this on the internet. I saw the government operate, you know, or, or create a program that says, you know, men, men and XY, XY chromosomes and X, forget all that nonsense. You know, the science of the sexes is nonsense. Gender is a spectrum. I mean, it's fluid. It, it's optional. It's neutral. Um, I mean, think about it. I mean, that, that's a complicated issue. But, but what does society look like? I mean, I talk a lot about rural America and what the culture looks like if we don't hold on to, to some degree the aspects or, or lifestyle of rural America. I mean, imagine a country when fewer and fewer and fewer men have a desire to be expressively masculine. And that's, uh, I mean, uh, you better be aware. I mean, I'm serious. And, and you know, I don't have uh, the ability to move the meter like uh, I'm thinking about something Joe Rogan or Tucker Carlson or somebody like that, but but I just think masculinity is something that we better adhere to, continue to adhere to, celebrate, and encourage young boys to not let go of that innate masculinity um, you have. I'm afraid you're fighting some forces, though, against that. But, I mean, don't we have to fight it? I mean, after after my fifth or sixth beer, I'm sorry, Baptist, after my fifth or sixth beer, uh, with my buddies over the weekend. I mean, who was counting, right? Well, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, who's counting? You're right. I mean, it was, it was good friends and good fellowship, and and uh, but but anyway, we started talking about uh, politics. I mean, it always goes there, uh, especially the guys that I grew up with who know I do this for a living. They want to know, hey man, let me pick your brain on this, or let's talk about this. Um, I mean, all have been successful in their own right, uh, business, uh, you know, life in general. I mean, they, these folks have all, and there's five or six of us to get together. And, you know, I, it, 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 it always surprises me when someone lets their guard down how much they'll tell you the distrust they have for government. Now, but they don't wake up every day saying, hey, man, let me find 10 articles that solidify my distrust of government. But if you get, you know, if you get a, a couple of beers in you and you start having a conversation about the old times and the good times, and all of a sudden, you know, well, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. Let me tell you about this. 
it, 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 it's always surprising to me how many normal Americans find government is not to be trusted. I mean, that, that's just kind of where we are today. I saw a, a statistic over the weekend, um, the Harvard-Harris poll has the majority of Americans believing the investigation of Donald Trump is politically motivated, 56%. It's only 3 per, I think, 13% of Democrats, 89% of Republicans, but about 56% of independents believe that the investigation of Donald Trump, the indictment, the arraignment of Donald Trump is politically motivated. But I mean, that's kind of a high-five moment for me uh, and myself. You know, wow, okay, I'm not on an island. Uh, my listenership is not on an island. Uh, our way of thinking is not out of the mainstream. I mean, it really is the mainstream. Now, now you know, the media is trying to convince you that it's not the mainstream. It's only the fringes. I mean, it's that January 6th crowd. You know, it's the uh, it's the militia, those who arm themselves to take up defense against the, the federal government. No, I think the majority of people at the birthday party Saturday would be highly suspicious of whether the government, but, but to Rev's point, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to live in a single wide in the middle of a tobacco field? Are you willing to lose it all to try and keep a hold of the American, the, the principal ideal of America, that, that we are a nation? Jefferson didn't guarantee us. I mean, I, I thought about this over the weekend, made some notes. Jefferson didn't guarantee or Jefferson didn't bequeath upon us um, an accountable press, an accurate press, an honest press. What, what, what did Jefferson, what was his motivating theory? A free press, right? See, I think Jefferson was such a theorist and such a uh, you know an, an intellect that that he understood if if the media is free, if we have a free and uh, you know I mean we we added the fair, but if we had a free press and the free press demonstrates the inability to be accountable, the inability to be unbiased, the inability that then we begin to lose those freedoms. In other words, it's all about freedom. I mean, the, the, the freedom of expression comes with a certain degree of responsibility and accountability. I mean, for we to live freely, we got to control our emotions. We don't have a dictator saying you got to live here and got to do this. I mean, we're able to decide where we want to live, what we want to do. I mean, Josh went to school in App State yep. and ends up on a radio show in Florence. You know why? Because that's what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the freedom to exercise that right. So freedom is a huge responsibility. And I started thinking about the the, the the media, not cover the Biden story, but just beating us over the head with the Trump story. And, and I, I thought about what would Jefferson say? Because Jefferson was the big proponent, advocate for having a free press. But Jefferson didn't, I mean, I don't ever remember Jefferson saying the press must be held account, or the press must be accountable. They must be fair. They must be unbiased. Uh, they must be accurate. I mean, I wrote these down. Uh, no, I mean they, they, you know, they must be responsible. No, you don't I mean, think he assumed. Well, I mean, I, I, no, I think he assumed that if you give people the freedom to do what they choose to do, and they don't act responsibly, they're not held accountable. They, they are completely and totally biased. The democracy will fail. The representative republic will fail because at the end of the day, didn't they say? I mean, a lot of the founders said, you know, what you've had here. I mean, if Franklin famously said, what you've got is a republic. If you're able to hold on to it, well, I think what he, well, I think what Franklin inferred was some of the things Jefferson said. Freedom is an enormous right, but it's enormous responsibility. I mean, Josh had the right to go to, you know, to um, App State and end up on a radio show, and uh, that doesn't happen in China. 
I mean, that doesn't happen in Russia. That doesn't happen in, in Ukraine. That doesn't happen in the Middle East. I mean, that just doesn't happen. We have the luxury of freedom. And a lot of that freedom comes to our responsibility. Um, there is no law that says the media has to be responsible. There's no law the media has to be accountable. There's no law the media has to be fair. There's no law the media has to be unbiased, right? I mean, the media's chosen to be biased. The media the media's chosen to be, um, not, in my opinion, not responsible. That they've chosen to play favorites and and choose sides. But but I think when Jefferson said that you know the the media has the right to be free, once they make the decisions post freedom, in other words, they are free to report on Donald Trump however they choose. There is no law that I know of that says the media can't say but so many good things about Biden and so many bad things about Trump, right? I mean, did right. Jefferson say, hey? When we establish this free press, 47% have to be voting Republicans. Only 53% can be voting Democrats. I mean, we know the media is about 90, 10%. I mean, if elections were held in the media in America today, Democrats would win by 90 to 10%. But, but once again, I think Jefferson bequeathed upon us that, that, that responsibility. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the government's job to, to, to make the media accountable or responsible. Um, now some would say, but it's time. And I may be one of those, but I, and that's probably a kind of an anti-Jeffersonian mindset, but I may be one of those who says it's time to change the slander laws, China, uh, the defamation laws, some of the, um, uh, the, 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 the ballots of reporting in the media should reflect the general public of the country. I mean, if our nation's deeply divided, I mean, if the country's 50, 50, let's say it is, I mean, if the country hypothetically is divided 50-50, and let's use the old school words, liberal and conservative. you got to have the country in the liberal world, half the country in the conservative world. How can 90% of the people who tell us what's going on in the world be of the same mindset that that one 50% is? I mean, it just doesn't work. That's a round peg, and it's going to lead to chaos, confusion, conflict, confrontation, and that's what we're dealing with today. I'm still uh, about three times a day, even on Saturday, I'm looking at the New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, CBS, NBC for a story about the accusations being levied against Joe Biden and the Biden family. I've yet to read a single story. I've, I've, I've Imagine that, guys. I mean, Comer says there are more witnesses, there are more bank records. He is the chair of the oversight committee. He's not some back row Johnny raising hell because he's mad about, you know, somebody's going to primary him in the next election. He's the chair of the oversight committee. He has made serious, serious accusations. Chuck Grassley has made serious accusations, and the media chooses to intentionally not cover it any at all. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You ready? 843-661-0937. I want to establish, I mean, I do a lot to try and convince you our leadership in Washington is incompetent and not able to do a worthy job for we, the people. I want to restore some confidence because I do feel a bit obligated okay, to help move us in a more positive direction. I gathered with some of my high school friends over the weekend, and for a second or two, they had a little bit of an intervention and accused me of being negative and, 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 and you know, be, being divisive and detrimental to the common good of America. Um, now, now remember Charleston has a higher percentage of men wearing skinny jeans than any County in South Carolina. 
I mean, it's probably it probably doesn't rival San Francisco or you know South Beach or somewhere like that, but not quite as many good old boys in Charleston as there was. Uh, some of the good old boys who have lived in Charleston have been tainted by some of what Charleston has to offer. I say that with a certain uh, term of endearment, but but in all honesty, I've been accused of being divisive and detrimental. I want to be positive, uplifting, inspirational. So so I want to celebrate some of the courageous leadership and competent, more so the competent leadership that our nation um, has on full display. So, Josh, if you don't mind, we'll do a montage. I know we got to call this, but about two or three minutes long, we'll get to the call as soon as I do my um, my, my patriotic duty. <laughs> I've been divisive enough for long enough, so let's be um, celebratory in our political leadership at our nation's capital. Ready? Earlier today, some uh, com- some comments about uh, the uh, tragic uh, accident in uh, 995. And if you want to make any comments with respect to that, feel feel free. You're recognized. Uh, no, I I, I uh, would, would, would just um, really like to you know the 95, 95, 95. You know. Um, you know, obviously that, you know, you're pretty much preoccupied with the with 95 and I know I certainly am too. And we know it's a major, uh, eatery, not, not just for, for Pennsylvania, but for the East, the East coast. And a lot of Pennsylvanians are worried that the delays and repairs bring to its standstill deal. Okay. Well, mm. but, but, but I mean, you, you can question the leadership there, but let, let's, Let's let's go to another. I mean, this would be the president of the United States. You ready? Made it harder for people to buy stabilized braces. Put a pistol on a brace; it turns into a gun. Makes it more. You can have a higher caliber weapon, a higher caliber bullet coming out of that gun. Oh yeah, turn take a brace and turn something into a gun. Hmm. Higher caliber turn a gun. pistol into a gun. Yeah, turn a See? pistol into a gun with just a brace. Or, yeah, higher caliber. Yeah, pistol. you take a knee brace. You go to Walgreens and buy a knee brace, and it turns that knee wow. brace into a gun. And that gun becomes a high-caliber gun. And that high-caliber gun will, uh, you imagine, shoot high-caliber bullets. Right? Okay, let's go back to another. Uh, And here's here's the hooded bandit again. You ready? (laughs) And now I'm standing next to the president again, next to a a collapsed bridge here. And he is here to commit to work with the the governor and the the delegation to make sure that we get this (laughs) fixed quick fast as well too this is a president that is committed to infrastructure yeah and then on top of that uh, the the jewel uh kind of a uh, uh, law of the inflation uh bill that is going to make sure that there's going to be bridges all across like this all across the america getting rebuilt so doesn't trump scare the hell out of y'all I mean, doesn't Trump, I mean, Trump scares the daylights out of me. See, and that's what I'm saying, guys. People like me and a lot of you who believe that our government is gone astray and needs to be shaken to its core need to be reminded that there are still very competent and capable people in positions of authority and power. You know you're off course or singing off tune if Biden looks at you and says, uh, like, well, what is he talking about? I mean, you know, Biden has the cue. You know what I mean? He, he's got somebody's told Biden, hey, when he says this, you say that. But with Fetterman, and God bless him. And, I, and I'll tell you this. You can say, wow, dude, 
I mean, you're picking on a man who had a stroke. No, I'm picking on a man whose family and state elected him to the U.S. Senate. I'm sorry. I mean, that, that's the way it is. His family allowed him to run. The Democrats said nothing to see here. His doctors were paid to probably, here's another corruption of medicine. His doctors were paid to say, he'll recover in no time. I mean, he'll be just fine in a week or two or three, just getting through this election. You won't believe that the coherence that that Fetterman will show shortly after this election. Well, it's nearly July 4th, and he seems to be at least as incoherent as he was to begin with. So so if you challenge me by being, you know, um, disparaging of a man who's dealt with a major medical event, get him off the ballot. Get him out of the Senate. Put him somewhere he needs to be and help him get well. He's still a young man. He can probably get better. But the two things a senator needs to do is speak and listen, and he can't do either. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Well, well, what does that really tell you, Dave? What it tells you is that you don't. You can get somebody that is that, that is completely. I hate to use the word, but that's a complete dumb idiot with a twenty IQ, and you can have him president, or you can have him be a. In other words, you don't have to be qualified in the least. All you have to do is do what you're told. Joe Biden is not qualified. Joe Biden couldn't run any business in America today. But he, but if, if, if he's done, but he can do what he's told to do. So he's not in charge there. But you going back to what you were saying earlier. You know, you got to have for for a public exist. You got to have moral leaders that have Christian values, and we just don't have that. And the world doesn't have that. Nobody, none of the leaders, I've said that before. And so that's that's going to be the downfall. To, you know, and the same thing with the press. They have they have uh, destroyed themselves because you know the more they want government and the more they want that that leftist socialist communist agenda, the less relevant they become. Then at that point, they're just people doing what they're told. Instead of saying they are not reporting, they're doing what they're told to do. And they and they started off doing it gladly, but at some point they they will realize that they're just a stooge for the government and the big corporations. I mean, it's but they're, and they're I, but we're getting but the thing is, Ken, I believe we've always had that. I don't believe we've ever had an honest press. Not going all the way back to the very beginning of the first papers that were printed. I don't know if we ever ever had true true honesty there. I just don't think we realized it until now. So in some ways we're doing pretty good. But that being said, how many people watch CNN? Fox, I mean, how many people are informed? There are very few of them. I'd say ninety percent of the of the country doesn't know diddly about what's going on. So I don't know. I'm just blabbing around on a Monday. But I had to beat a bum up in my front yard here at Mount Pleasant, six hundred thousand dollars. It's the cheapest house you can buy, and they got a 22-year-old boy coming around trying to bump cigarettes off my wife and get mad because she doesn't have one at all. And he was also suicidal because he shot me the bird when he ran away. But the old breeze, you know, probably would have hurt him. So I guess I am growing. I didn't even hit him, <laughs> amazingly. But Thank anyway, you guys, you guys have a good morning, man. Thank you, Breeze. <laughs> Appreciate it. I mean, and, and go back to what I said about Jefferson. I mean, I, I, I've looked, and I don't see anywhere that Jefferson said. You know, the media must be accountable. 
the media must be unbiased. The media must be fair. It must be accurate. It must be, um, you know, uh, responsible. I mean, he talks about a free press. And I think Breeze is onto something. I mean, a free society requires some ethic and morals, right? I mean, if, it, if, if, if free people are unethical and immoral, what does society become? I mean, if government, I mean, think of government for a second. Government's full of what? Robots, machines, or people? So if if the if the if the the um the delineation of of morality and immorality and, and, and ethics and, and unethical behavior so 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 the government's inhabited by not robots not machines but rather but rather people and if people have decided to less distinguish what is moral or ethical or not and I don't have the book on morality I mean I don't get to decide what is moral and what's not what what's ethical or what's not I mean the country's decided that with laws and, you know, codes and ordinances and all these other um, sorts of things. In other words, of the Bible gave us 10. The government's given us, what, 2 million-ish <laughs> somewhere somewhere thereabout. Uh, you know, you got natural law and then you got man law and the uh, the convergence of natural law and, and man law or some of the man laws are basically um, supported by God's natural law. Uh, other man laws are just kind of made up to try and keep society in general in order. Uh, to some degree, but but I go back to what Jefferson said about the press. Um, but 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 the one I, I don't know, Rev. The one encouragement that I see in the data, despite the media choosing to not report on the Biden administration or the Biden family, that's unfair to the Biden administration. Nobody in the administration that I know of has been accused. The Biden family have been accused, and I want to be careful with the word accused. Because I've heard other people say, well, you know, they no, we don't know they did it. I mean, I think it, we, we suspect there's something here. But, but it's just hard for me to believe that when Jefferson talked about a free press and Jefferson talked about a country without newspapers or newspapers without, without a country, and he'd probably rather have, have the latter, I mean, these people either have a job to do or they don't. I mean, you know, are you a reporter, a journalist, or a propagandist or, or somebody who censors opinions? And, and I, I just think that um, – that despite the media's attempt to try and paint the narrative a certain way, um, the majority of Americans believe that Trump's indictment arraignment is politically motivated. Um, the majority of independents believe, I saw a poll this morning, 51% of independents believe that Joe Biden has received um, financial compensation from, um, I don't know, his ability to influence government. I mean, it's a Trafalgar poll. I'll try to get Robert on one day this week. To discuss this poll, 12% of Democrats believe that Biden has financially gained in an illegal way. 90% of Republicans believe that Biden has gained financially in an illegal way. 51% of independents. I mean, that's a big number to me because nobody in the world has been told what Biden has done. I mean, independents don't watch Fox News. The independents not listening to my show by and large. That's why the independents are probably the biggest bunch of non-truth tellers in politics. See, I'm convinced. I mean, I understand it's, it's, um, it's in vogue to say I'm an independent. I mean, it sounds good. I'm tired of both parties. I don't, you know, the binary, the binary choice is let me down that's time the, after time. That's the time. cool thing to You're say. You're right. I mean, I, you know, I want to be Joe Cool. I'm independent. I mean, I'm no longer a Republican. I'm no longer a Democrat. I am an independent. And we're told, uh, you know, that the 40-40-20 rule by that, I mean 40 Republican, 40 Democrat, 20 Independent is now 30, 30, 40. There's 30% of the voters who are 
you know, diehard Republicans, 30%, who are Democrats, 40% in the middle, declare themselves, you know, pragmatic independents. They're, they're not obligating themselves to the ideology or agenda or platform of one political party or another. Well, I mean, if, the, if this, this, Harris, this is Harvard-Harris poll is correct and this Trafalgar poll is correct, then the independents are paying more attention than you imagined um, they would because 55% believe the investigation of Trump, the indictment of Trump, the arrangement of Trump, the trial of Donald Trump, not 55% of Americans, mind you, 55% of independents believe that that is the case, and the majority of independents believe that the Biden family has accepted money by its ability to influence government. I mean, th- those are telling statistics, and they tell me that there's a lot fewer independents than there really are in America. In other words, you, you'll tell a pollster, I'm an independent. Well, what do you think about Trump? I think he's getting screwed. What do you think about Biden? I think he got paid. You're not an independent. I mean, you like calling yourself an independent, but um, independents just don't keep up that much. They don't pay um, close enough attention to form. Ah, that's unfair. I mean, they, they pay close enough attention. They just don't play as close attention, uh, in particular, uh, to the primary process. 843-661-0937. I do want to say at the 8 o'clock hour, um, it's been confirmed, unless something stupid happens, that we'll have um, have a a very interesting conversation. That's all I'm going to say on General Francis Marion. I mean, we have historically said on these airwaves that, okay, Washington is the most significant general America's ever known. Who's second? And I think there's a lot of evidence that shows General Marion may be the most second, other than Washington, the most significant general to ever live um, in America. So we'll um, we'll have a, a trifecta of experts. Um, I'll let them tell you um, their involvement. They're, they're, they're private citizens. I think one may be officially involved but they have a, an, an immense amount of knowledge on Francis Marion, on General Marion, uh, that they understand the history, the involvement, um, where this happened, where that happened. Um, there's a big exhibit, if I'm not mistaken, that that will make its way into our area sooner than later. Stands to reason. I mean, we're home to Francis Marion University. Uh, the PD region is, uh, dare I say, his old stomping grounds. So with the 8 o'clock hour, we're going to do two things at one time. We're going to do a radio show segment for as long as it takes, and we'll um, and we'll also record a podcast while we're doing uh, the radio show because we've said over and over and over again that Marion doesn't give, uh, doesn't get the credit he deserves. Now, with a small circle, he does, but we want to try to uh, better educate and inform our listeners about the um, the local history and the significance of General Francis Marion. Um, and the fact that we live and broadcast in uh, what I refer to as his old stomping ground. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. It's kind of interesting that the the Republican primary is beginning to really intensify. And the reason it's beginning to intensify is somebody has clearly taken on um, Donald Trump, Chris Christie, as part of his, I mean, it's all he does. I mean, he's going to be the bulldog that attacks Donald Trump, uh, I would suspect Trump pays him very little attention until something in the polling shows that Christie is gaining traction. Now, Trump's not the most disciplined nor normal politician. Historically, you know, you don't punch down. 
And if a guy's, you know, harassing or haranguing or, you know, trying to make you the central issue of the campaign, if you're at 40 or 50%, he's at 2 or 3%, you just let him be. I mean, I don't care if he's the former governor of, uh, of New Jersey and has high name ID. I mean, I've seen poll after poll. Um, what Republican candidate are you least likely to vote for? Christie wins about every one of those. But if he's going to be the bulldog. He's going to be the guy that asserts himself in, you know, you got to distinguish yourself from Trump. I mean, he can't be Trump and run against Trump. So, so he's going to be the, just a counter uh, proposal. In other words, you got Trump, you got Ramaswamy, kind of, kind of, you know, Curry in favor with Trump. You got Pence who's walking that tight wire, Haley, Scott, um, DeSantis is still walking that tight wire. Christie says, screw that. I mean, I'm not walking the tight wire. The game, the guy's a danger. He's petulant. He's a child. Uh, it's all about him. I mean, he's going to find every character flaw. And in fairness, I mean, in fairness, if I was going to be, if I were going to be the anti-Trump candidate, that's the, that's the attack angle I'd take. I mean, he's petulant. He's childish. It's all about him. He's never demonstrated any, um, you know, humble uh, humility or responsibility, accountability. Um, some of the things that have happened on his watch, he always says, it can't be my fault. It's got to be somebody else's fault. I think even the most ardent Trump supporter would, would agree that there's some merit to some of those debate points and some of those arguments to be made. Uh, you know, you got your MAGA hat on, but you got to admit he lacks humility. He lacks a certain um, acceptance of responsibility when things don't go um, his way. Uh, and, and Christie is beginning to really distinguish. But the most interesting part of the campaign today to me is the fact that Ron DeSantis believes the only way to catch, you know, some traction and close that gap with Donald Trump is to talk about the, dis, the, the kind of the disassembling of the government. And that, that's, that's a crazy mm-hmm. campaign slogan. That's pretty radical. But it's, that's, that's, it's, well, I'm telling you, it's something Trump didn't do. Good point. I mean, it's something Trump did not do. Um, Trump kept Coney. Trump hired Christopher Wray. Trump did not, you know, uh, reform the DOJ or FBI or IRS. I mean, you can say, well, he was too busy fighting, you know, the political opposition on Russia. I get it. I mean, I, I'm not... I'm not saying he should have, but I think those two candidates have really taken the best angles they can to try and, you know, um, thwart that the the eventual coronation. Here we go with the royal word again of uh, of Donald Trump. It's a little bit like Hillary, you know, in um in 08 and 12 or 08 in particular. We thought she was the eventual nominee because it was her turn, and Obama shows up and kind of um reigns on that parade, and then in 12, obviously the reelecting of uh, Barack Obama, and then. In 16, most Democrats felt, okay, last time wasn't her time because she ran into a generational candidate, but this is different. All we got now is this old socialist curmudgeon named Bernie Sanders. And had they not stacked the deck and played around, they muckied around with the process in a big way to try and thwart any advances Bernie Sanders was beginning to make. But I just think in the Republican Party right now, you've got three candidates auditioning for administrative jobs or cabinet positions. I think you've got Ramaswamy. I think you've got Tim Scott and probably Nikki Haley. I mean, they're, they're auditioning for, I don't know that Trump would have Nikki back in a cabinet level position, but I think he would obviously embrace having Tim Scott maybe on the ticket as a VP um, candidate. Brings diversity and kind of an anti-Obama flavor to um, kind of the race debate in America today. But I think the two candidates that have done exactly what they need to do in the last week or 10 days 
has been Chris Christie and and um, Ron DeSantis. Now, where it goes, I don't have any idea. Um, how many people are going to vote for somebody other than Trump just because they don't like Trump and they're attacking Trump? I mean, that's going to be popular inside the Beltway. I mean, rest assured, Christie will probably receive adequate funding because of that. You know, if if Tucker's over the target, I'm not saying he is, but if Tucker's over the target, I think he is, and it, and a lot of this is about kind of the war machine, the war party, the military-industrial complex, and the amount of money they generate for the five most affluent or five of the most five of the ten most affluent counties in America, collar counties of our nation's capital. Why? I mean, if it's full of government workers, why is it so affluent? You know, why is um why is Falls Church and Alexandria and Bethesda? I mean, why are they as affluent? as um, Silicon Valley or, or Manhattan. Well, I mean, I think it's defense contractors. And I think defense contractors and lobbyists for defense contractors make enormous amounts of money. That raises the you know the per capita income, the median income, whatever measurement you want to use there. And when somebody comes along, like Tucker says, and, you know, I, I don't know that it's as macro as Tucker, try, as Tucker tries to make it. I mean, I think there's some some other complexities and and, and sophistications in, in this. But, but you know, if, if, if Trump's the the anti-war candidate, I mean, Trump doesn't run around saying, you know, I'm the anti-war candidate, but but he does. We have no business in our right. We go got no business with all these bases, American imperial. Trump doesn't say American imperialism, but he doesn't talk empire. But, but most people who ascribe to that notion find him more appealing or attractive than anybody else. I mean, if you're somebody out there who believes that the military-industrial complex has gotten too big and broad, and we built a an empire that exports imperialism. Once again, I think there's merit to that argument. I mean, I really and truly believe. I don't think that's the only thing wrong in Washington. I, mean, I think there are a lot of other things uh, to look under the hood at. But I think that is a big part of the disdain proper Washington has for Donald Trump. B- because that's one thing that's not on autopilot. Think about the line items that are, are at about a trillion dollars. I mean, do we really believe a president's going to monkey around with Medicare? No. Medicaid, probably not. Social Security, no. Um, you got to service the debt, right? I mean, that's $600 billion today. It goes to about $800 billion when we refinance some of the um, outstanding debt. So you've got five line items that, that are somewhere in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars. One is defense. I mean, that's the one place. I mean, that, that's, you know, non-discretionary defense spending. Are we going to ever, you know, um, aggressively cut military spending? Now, Lindsey will fight you tooth and nail. Some of the neocons that are still in the Republican Party will fight you tooth and nail. But I've heard J.D. Vance. I've heard Josh Hawley. I've obviously heard Rand Paul. I mean, if you get a um, a comparable president, I mean, let's say you get a DeSantis or a Trump, and DeSantis says, some of my ambitions are to disassemble the federal government. Now, he's paid closer attention to the DOJ, FBI, and IRS. I mean, it's disassembling of the government and a competent executive and, you know, uh, kind of a micromanager. I mean, that's what he's – and he's basically taking a shot at Trump. He's saying Trump has no interest in being a competent manager. Trump is not a a day-to-day grinding kind of guy. I did it in Florida. I'll do it at the federal level. And I think that sells. I can tell you this, as a a Trump-leaning voter, that got my attention. When, when I read that he had had multiple strategy sessions, Victor David Hansen is involved in some of these strategy sessions from an intellectual perspective, kind of an academic 
involved? It knows the history of government. How would the FBI formed? How would the IRS formed? How, how would we disassemble and reassemble an FBI, DOJ, uh, IRS? Those are big, big, uh, I mean, you're talking about a bold agenda? I mean, make America great again is a baseball cap and a bumper sticker. But, but where do you go from there? I mean, there are a lot of tentacles to make America great again. DeSantis is saying, as part of making America great again, we got to get government back accountable to the people. And the way to get government back accountable to the people is not to strategically reform, but rather to rather to radically disassemble. I mean, I just think that gets a lot of people's attention. And as this trial wears on, I don't have any idea of the seriousness of the charges. We know what the indicting document says. We've seen that. We know what the actual charges are. But we've had no defense argument. We've had nobody from the defense team say, well, they only told you one side of the story. Here's the other side of the story. It may be devastatingly incriminating or it may not be. I think that is something that DeSantis has no say in. Christie has no say in. Tim Scott has no say in. But if, if there is top secret defense information that Trump showed to members of the media or somebody on, you know, somebody you shouldn't have shown, shown that stuff to that, that, that becomes, I'm not saying people throw the towel in on Trump, but, but I think DeSantis begins giving those people an alternative it's the next exit down. It's not, you know, 100 miles and 50 exits down the road. I mean, here's a guy that the Trump voter has always believed they could tolerate. I mean, Rev even says the dream team would be Trump top of the ticket, DeSantis as his VP. Yeah. Well, I mean, without saying it, Rev basically says, I find DeSantis very acceptable. I mean, I don't have a problem <clears throat> My voice with DeSantis. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people feel that way. But DeSantis is not charismatic. On the hustings, he's not going to blow your doors off singing "Born to Run." I mean, he's just not. He's going to not. He's not going to be that kind of performer in uh, in uh, in some of these um, events. And how, how does a guy like that cut through? I think he lays out a very aggressive and bold agenda. And and most Republicans believe that government does not answer to the people. Well, and and they'd like to hear the word disassemble, strategically disassemble, radically disassemble. I mean, that's, that's bold. I mean, that, that's big. That's a big, and big I think answer. I like it. Well, I mean, most American, most Republicans are going to like that. Most Trump voters find that to be um, very appealing in their heart of hearts. The, the Trump voter, if he's honest or she's honest with themselves will say, I wish he had done more of that. I wish he had more effectively disassembled um, some of these government agencies that seem to be uh, out of control. Now the left doesn't believe they're out of control. The left thinks they're doing exactly what they, they should do. Uh, they're maintaining law and order with a uh, uh, the most, you know, dis, uh, what they am need, I trying to They need more control. Yeah, That's I mean, the, the, the most illegal president in American history has to be dealt with in the most aggressive uh, fashion imaginable. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Vert Odom, Marlboro County. Morning, Vert. Good morning. How y'all doing? Hey, Vert. Good. Uh, Ken, I think some of the lower counties like Asa Hutchinson and Christie, I think this weekend they said that they didn't think that they wanted to sign the pledge. Well, that's probably uh, letting a lot of people know that who they think is going to be eventually the candidate, and I think without a doubt it will be President Trump. Um, you know, I was with Trump in uh, January, and he talked all about policy. 
for about an hour and a half and gave probably one of his best speeches. And I think you're going to see, um, starting on July 1st uh, in Pickens downtown, you're going to see him go to the message and what he's going to do. Uh, he's going to talk about where we were when he left. He's going to talk about where we are now and where he intends to take us. And I think as long as he stays on message, he's going to distance himself. Um, the rally in Pickens is going to be something like no no place in the country has ever seen. It's the downtown, basically town hall in Main Street in Pickens. Uh, no rally's ever been set up like this. And uh, I think that's the uniqueness of uh, Donald Trump. And the message is that he's going to show the America that he has not forgot about small-town America. And you don't get any smaller than Pickens, South Carolina, with a population of about 33 141 people, but I imagine there'll be 30 to 50,000 people there uh, on July the 1st. But I just think that as time goes on and the rallies, we saw them in 2016, Ken. Uh, I think I told you that uh, those rallies across the country, every person that stood in line seven hours, uh, those people and all their families and friends were going to vote for Trump. And I think as time goes on, and he did say in January that rallies are going to be different. They're going to bigger, be bigger and better than ever. And uh, as long as President Trump stays on message and uh, and doesn't jump into the gutter with people like Christie and them that stands no chance of getting more than 1% of the vote, I think he's going to distance himself from everybody. Um, Ron DeSantis, from what I've seen, you know, he's had a terrible rollout. He's had a couple of bad weeks. He's made a little comeback. But it down 40, 50 points, depending on which poll you look at, he's never going to catch Trump. And uh, I just think in the end, as time goes on through the year and then the next year, I think Trump's going to be a wide distance away from uh, probably DeSantis will be the only candidate close close at all. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate that. See, I, I, don't, I don't agree. I mean, Verd has a better feel for that than I do. I mean, he's out there, boots on the ground, interacting with the party activist. I, I just don't, I don't sense that. I think there's a rally in DeSantis. I mean, I, you know, and I think that that putting the strategic session together, I mean, I do think he had a very average rollout at best. He's not a charismatic guy. He's not a star. I mean, it does seem that the voters today are inclined to be more supportive of someone with a personality and charisma and a, 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 dynamis, a dynamism about it. You know where I'm headed. I mean, it's just like it's somebody who has a dynamic personality. Um, they seem to, the voters today get more enthusiastic about that guy. Hey, here's a real smart comedy guy, big, good president. Yeah, I find him a bit boring. But, but I think, you know, disassembling, strategically disassembling, radically disassembling, words matter. I mean, I learned that in politics. Words are very particular. People are sensitive to what words you use. Certain words get your attention. I'm going to radically disassemble. The DOJ. I'm going to aggressively um, dismantle the FBI. I mean, th th those words mean something to people, and I still think there are opportunities out there for candidates not named Trump. Gun to my head today. Who wins the Republican primary? Takes me one half of one second to say Donald Trump. I mean, I'm not a moron, but but I think you've got to let some of these things play out. It, probably the most interesting part of all this is a president is charged with, excuse me, a former president is under indictment for 37 crimes and is the odds-on favorite to win the Republican nomination. I mean, if you don't believe there's a great degree of distrust that the American people have with its government, I mean, that's the story in all of this. That, that Trump is a rank, excuse me, he's investigated, he's indicted, he's, uh, he's arrested or arraigned, he's, he's formally been charged with what, 37 crimes ranging from 
um, mishandling declassified information to violation of the Espionage Act, and he's still at 50%, 51, 52, 53. I've seen him as high as 57, 58%. So one half of all Republican voters in America, I mean, that's a protest vote. I mean, that's not as much a pro-Trump vote as a protest vote against the, um, you know, the, the, the machine that people have become so deeply untrusting of. And, I mean, you don't put that genie back in the bottle. And I think Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie are trying to say, you know, we, we just got to get back to Washington. We got to fine-tune it a little bit. I mean, yeah, we got off course a little bit. I think that's nonsense. I mean, I think the voters laugh in their face when they say things like, you know, um, we just got to do a little reforming and we, we got to get refreshed and we got to, you know, the, these institutions that we've revered for so long deserve to be revered. I mean, I, I just, I mean, you're telling half the country that the institution they have very little faith in are to be revered. No, I mean, I, 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 that goes nowhere in the Republican Party. But Chris Christie's running to try and stop Donald Trump from getting elected and, and to make it, I mean, tr- tr- Trump, Trump, Christie likes to be relevant. I mean, he likes to see his name in lights. So the only way to become relevant and seem, I guess, see your name in lights to some degree is to take on the giant. To, and to, right can now, he be playing a role that is to help DeSantis? In other words, DeSantis can't attack Trump like that because it would turn off no, he the could. voters. I mean, he could be doing that, but DeSantis has to be very careful right. and not associated. So he lets what Christie be what the mean, But, but if, if people begin be to heavy, suspect so to that, DeSantis gets hurt. I mean, yeah. if, if I'm DeSantis, I make it clear. Hey, I'm not associated with anybody. I mean, Christie doesn't like Trump. That's their fight. You know, I got no problem with Donald Trump. I just think there were things we could do better. He said a lot of things that he didn't do. Disassembling the DOJ. I mean, you know, uh, Christie put Bill Barr in play. I mean, excuse me. Trump made Bill Barr his AG. Now Trump hates him. Trump made Jim Comey or kept Jim Comey as FBI director. Now he hates him. He named Christopher Ray as FBI director. Now he hates him. I mean, think of that, guys. I mean, I'm not, I'm not piling on Trump. I'm just saying consider some of that. Trump says Barr is a coward. He's no count. He's a liar and all these things. Uh, somebody named Bill Barr AG. Christopher Ray's now the FBI director. He can't be trusted. Who made him FBI director? I, you know, th- those are fair mm-hmm. criticisms. I mean, even the, 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 the 100% Trump voter has to understand that there's some blemishes there that are going to have to be explained. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. We've got a, um, we normally ramble about on Monday mornings, right, Rev? We normally make it up as we go. True. The week kind of writes itself. Um, by noon Monday, Trump has done something that gets everybody's attention, good, bad, or indifferent. This is going to be a little bit different. Buddy of mine reached out to me. Henry actually called me a several weeks back and said, you know, we're doing this big event. We want to get involved and, and promote it and, and talk a lot about it. Um, I got three people in the studio. I introduced the three. Ben Ziegler, Henry Swink, and Stephen Mott are with us. Stephen's the curator of the Florence Museum. Henry is um, a proprietor at McCall Farms, a big sponsor of our feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance, but somebody very historically interested in our area, where we come from, what we're about, what we do. I refer to Ben as our resident historian, whether he likes that title or not. But um, but Ben Ben and I have had a friendship for a long time. But our friendship on this particular issue, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, in in 2006, I got elected to county council in 04, and in 06 you came to me about uh, heritage tourism, and you felt one of the attributes we had 
that we could most successfully market was Francis Marion. Um, Henry's argued to me that other than General Washington, Marion would be the second most relevant general of the Revolutionary War era. Um, you lobby the General Assembly. They create the Francis Marion Historical or the Trail, Trail Commission. Trail. And, and out of that comes an attempt to commemorate and, 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 and memorialize the life, history, and legacy of General Marion. Did I get that close to, close to accurate? You did. And really, th- thanks, Ken. It really did have sort of a, a several prongs to it. One was commemoration and memory and better historical understanding. Uh, but a, another thrust, as you pointed out, was using the Marion story as a way to uh, leveraging it into what the tourism people call product. Uh, finding the Marion sites, telling the Marion story, bringing people off the interstates into the back roads of the PD, uh, helping drive some economic development and prosperity uh, along with conservation and preservation. Marrying those two through a tourism trail that's focused on campaigns of Francis Marion. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the late Bill Chandler uh, and Fred Carter and I sort of put that together back in 2006. I chaired the commission uh, for three years, and we did uh, some great things. We did all the archaeology that we wanted to do to find most of the major Marion sites. Uh, Steve Smith at USC, who wound up writing a book uh, that I commend to your listeners called Francis Marion and the Snows Island Community myth, history, and archaeology. Steve uh, did all the work. We were able to locate some fascinating Marion sites that we can talk about. And um, we had a, a master plan done by a national consultant that won a, an award, a historical planning award. Uh, and just about that time, the effects of the recession were kicking in, belts were tightening, heritage tourism ceased to be a priority for state government, and ceased to be healing as it was in the early 2000s local government. So the Trail Commission uh, ultimately sort of went into hibernation uh, by about 2010, 2011. Uh, Henry has injected a lot of energy into it lately. Uh, Henry was part of a group that uh, helped push this exhibit at the museum, which is fascinating. I look forward to talking with you about that. Uh, but Henry has almost single-handedly gotten the, gotten the band back together, so to speak, with the Trail Commission. Henry's now a member. He's been working with the governor and the General Assembly to jumpstart that effort to uh, bring that Heritage Tourism Trail, to bring the Francis Marion sites uh, online into public attention and hopefully reap some of the benefits that okay. we were looking to looking to. Achieve. Okay, Henry, I'm going to jump to you for a second. Yeah. So, so, so Ben gives you a lot of credit for rejuvenating, um, re-energizing. Um, you're a Southern gentleman. I love to hear you tell stories. I love to hear you talk about your heritage, where we come from, your past, why it matters so much to you. So, 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 so why now? I mean, why, why did you decide now to be as involved as you are? Well, Ken, that's a great question. I'm not sure exactly why now. Certainly, Francis Marion and our local heritage has always been important in my whole life. I've always enjoyed it. <clears throat> um, maybe, Ken, if we, if we want to reflect um, at my age, I've turned the company over to some younger folks in the business, family family members in the business. They are doing a great job, so I'm looking for something to do. Certainly, that's probably part of it, but it's always been um, a keen interest. But I've had a lot of support. I'm in the Florence Kiwanis Club. I approached the club with this kind of thought in mind. They jumped wholeheartedly into 
agreeing that this is a good thing, a good project for our club to do. So I've had a terrific amount of help with the um, Lawrence Kiwanis Club. So they've been a big part of it too. But it's been a great journey so far. Stephen, I, I want to go to you. You'd be, uh, I, I don't know you as well as not Henry or Ben, obviously, but you're the curator at the Florence Museum. There is a display that, that is uh, available to the public or will be available uh, to the public. So talk a little bit about p- putting this puzzle together. I mean, it, it's easy for Henry to want something done and me to want something done and Ben to want something done. There, there's got to be a venue. There's got to be an organized effort to make sure we do this the right way. How, um, I don't want to say how difficult, how complicated, how rewarding, how gratifying has it been? Well, this has been a, a successful exhibition for us. I think partly because uh, I am the creator of both art and history at the museum. And uh, those things don't always connect or overlap. But there are some moments when they do. And Francis Marion is the story of the Revolutionary War in the PD. So in trying to tell that story, we have to talk about him. And uh, there were, because there were a lot of, there was a lot of interest in Marion in the early and mid 19th century, that interest came from literature, the biographies that were written about him, the stories that were told, they were picked up by these 19th century artists. There's a lot of material to draw draw from. And the purpose of the exhibition is to inform people about Marion and his significance through 19th century art, but also recent archaeology. And in doing so, compare the myth of Marion to the facts, the things that we can know about him through science, through archaeology and modern research. So it has been rewarding in the sense that uh, this exhibition, I think, successfully pulls those things together. For the first time, I mean, these artworks, they were from prominent 19th century American artists uh, like John Blake White, who was also from South Carolina. The famous story of Francis Marion inviting a British officer to share his meal, known as the Sweet Potato Dinner. This was a story that was told by Mason Locke Weems, that's early biographer of Marion's, and then it translates into art. Um, first as illustrations in these early biographies, very crude, you know, unattributed to any particular artist. But the stories and the images get picked up, and then art becomes a vehicle for the creation of the Marian myth. And for me, any subject of interest for an exhibition becomes more interesting when you don't have all the answers. The question in this case is, did these things that he became famous for in the PD, a lot of them, did they really happen? Or are they part of a fantasy that was written about him that was created and then perpetuated through the dissemination of art and literature in the early and mid 19th century? So so the intent of the exhibit is to make sure we're accurate. We're not embellishing. We're we're not exaggerating. I mean, we... It's to to show both sides of the story. Okay. Well, to promote conversation. I mean, no doubt we were talking before we came on the air. You know, Marion um, took command of the Williamsburg Militia at Witherspoon's Ferry, where the statue is, what's now Johnsonville, Florence County, on August 17, 1780. Uh, he had been sent away by Horatio Gates, who was the American general who had marched into South Carolina to liberate the state. The British had taken Charleston. South Carolina had fallen in, in May of 1780. Uh, Gates um, 
Marion tries to hook up with Gates because Marion's evacuated from Charleston. He breaks his ankle, and that's a whole whole other story. But he breaks his ankle before the city's captured, and he's evacuated, so he's not captured. He's a colonel in the Continental Army. He's the highest-ranking officer in the state once um, Charleston falls. So once he recuperates in the summer of 1780, he goes to get a group of um, neighbors and like-minded um, friends to go and offer their services to Gates, who's just marched into South Carolina. Um, Gates, in effect, laughs at him. This sort of ragged group of, um, you know, it's described as um, uh, about 20 men and boys, um, some black, some white, all miserably equipped. And so Gates is, you can almost see this great general. He's the hero of the Battle of Saratoga. He's a guy who's going to liberate South Carolina. He doesn't know what to do with this ugly little misfit bow-legged, hook-nosed, short, swarthy, limping um, South Carolinian. So he sends him away to, quote-unquote, gather intelligence. Gathering intelligence is sort of, a, to me, is sort of a euphemism for staying out of his way. He sends Marion to take command of the Williamsburg Militia, which is a group that's gathered, and they've asked, actually asked Gates to send them someone to, to command them. So Marion takes command of the Williamsburg Militia. Uh, he, he rides out of the camp at Camden. They get about 12 miles down the road. Uh, they're awakened by gunfire, uh, and they know the, uh, a battle's getting ready to start. They have the question whether they're going to keep going or go back and join the fight. Marion says, no, we're under orders. We've got to keep going. So they ride on. Uh, unbeknownst to them, the American army is annihilated at the Battle of Camden. Uh, so when Marion rides into that camp on August 17th, he's it. There's nobody else with a... a viable fighting force in South Carolina. So between August of 1780 and April of 1781, when Nathaniel Green comes into South Carolina to start the campaign that ultimately leads to Yorktown, um, Marion, that's his partisan career. That's his career, uh, the partisan phase of his career. That's his career in the PD. That's where all of these famous stories and, and battles take place. Marion has a different role in the war after 17, April of 1781. We can say without doubt that Marion kept the cause of liberty alive. He fought with a band of citizen soldiers, very unlikely group to keep the great British army off balance, but they did, and that's, there's no question about that. Uh, what's mo more interesting to me and what Stephen, I think, was alluding to is the literature and the art then take that and try to leverage it into something more thematic, something bigger and, and Weem starts in 1809 he is a uh, he's the most prominent publisher in the U.S. he's a, an Anglican clergyman Episcopal clergyman and he his first great work is a biography of George Washington that's the source of the, the myth of the cherry tree uh, and Peter Ory Marion's lieutenant um, good friend writes a history of Marion's uh, exploits a, a biography of sorts and sends it to Weems be published. And Weems takes it and rewrites it and publishes it in 1809. Uh, Ori said that Weems turned his history into romance. I mean, even Ori recognizes that, look, this, this stuff didn't happen. But what Weems is trying to do is to create a national myth. He's trying to bring the infant, the, the states of the infant republic together. So he's creating these themes like George Washington. He, he calls Marion, to Henry's point, he calls Marion the Washington of the South. And sort of bringing bringing the southern states into the 
into the conversation early in the Republic when they're looking back on the revolution. What was the, what was the war about in the South? So, uh, again, I, Steve Smith in his book says that Southerners were traveling West to settle Alabama and Tennessee, Mississippi between the 18 teens and 1830s. Most of them carried two books with them, the Bible and Weems's life of Marion. So that starts to create this idea of Marion that sort of transcends the actual historical record that we have. And I think I mentioned to you as well, you know, contemporary accounts of Marion, um, particularly immediate post-war, uh, he is not characterized as a as a great leader in the late 18th century sense. He's not a great general who wins big battles. Uh, you get the sense from Lord Cornwallis that he's more of a pest than anything. Uh, Bannister Tarleton, Marion's great adversary, doesn't even mention him in his memoir. So, you know, he's he's fighting a, a different kind of war than Washington and Cornwallis and Greene are fighting. But Ben, was he fighting that kind of war out of necessity? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've heard him. Okay, and I'll give a characterization. I want to get your take on this. It. I've been led to believe through some of my readings and understandings that Marion may not deserve credit for winning the war, but he certainly deserves a lot of credit for not losing the war. Absolutely. Is that a fair as, as, assessment? As Steve Smith says he he kept Steve Smith's whole um, thesis in his book on Marion is that. Marion kept a community of resistance together. The people who live in our part of the, our part of South Carolina, our people, our ancestors, uh, Marion kept them on the American side and allowed them to fight, melt away into the swamps when it was time to do that, come back together. I mean, this is very much as you and I said. This is this is the origins of partisan warfare. He wasn't out there to win big battles. He wasn't taking and occupying towns. He was keeping a keeping the British off balance. B, perhaps more importantly, keeping this community of resistance together, keeping the American cause alive. Because you got to remember, people who lived up here um, before the revolution, and there's a whole show you can do on this, you know, it wasn't a clear-cut thing as to what side you were on. It's, it's been compared. One loyalist of the period said that it was like a patchwork quilt. I mean, it was, you, you had people, neighbors who were on different sides. It was truly a civil war, but there wasn't a great deal of enthusiasm large areas of what's now the PD, what have been called the backcountry, for either side. And so Marion had to win some hearts and minds in addition to to winning military um, objectives. Let's take a break. Uh, First break of this hour, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Kind of a special edition of Wake Up Carolina. We're not doing the normal, um, you know, rambunctiousness of conservative talk radio, but rather a more cerebral time with three gentlemen uh, from this area. Henry Swink, a business guy. Here, been with McCall Farms. How long, Henry? I'm with the company's how old? Uh, it's, since the 50s. Yeah, uh, since the 1850s, right? I mean, I know you've been there. 1950s. But, but the family's business is how old? I mean, it's. Yeah, it's, it's uh, Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. Uh, nearly 200 years years old. I'm Stephen Mott, curator of Florence Museum. Ben Ziegler. Are, are you the founding member of the Francis Man Trail Commission? I was the, the first chairman of the commission when it was created by the legislature in 2006 and her henry is the current member breathing some energy and life right. into this henry newest is, henry and latest is. effort and um and Stephen, i want to go to you if you don't mind and we'll get back to being sure. here in a second so um so 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 people want to know more people wonder why they don't know more you have an opportunity for people to learn more by visiting the florence museum fair 
Right. So Francis Marion, uh, having grown up here, I'm from Florence. Having grown up here, Francis Marion was always uh, a background character, right? And the stories that I heard growing up, um, businesses named after him, you learn about him going to school. Uh, and so I think because he's, he was a recurring character in the background uh, growing up in this area, uh, we we come to think of him as a sort of local hero, that he had this local significance that wasn't necessarily portable, uh, that wasn't a national reputation, it was just a local reputation. So I think that was also true in those years or those first few decades after he died, he had a small reputation. And then his reputation grew. And, and art played a big role in that. Uh, these major American artists had decided to represent Marion as this heroic figure. And that is playing off of the literature and the biographies and the stories that were being told about him. Uh, and so in the middle of the 19th century, there's this huge swell of interest in Marion, and that's when his reputation as a hero really begins to develop. And so part of the purpose of the exhibition is to demonstrate that through art and through literature, Francis Marion wasn't just a local hero. He wasn't just a local story. He was very much a figure on the stage of national events. Being the most historically significant figure of the PD, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I would think so. Um, and, you know, in, in historically significant uh, in terms of the, the history of, um, of, of our country, certainly revolution, and, and um, I, I'd, I'd struggle to find somebody more significant. But I think the, the point that Stephen makes, I'd like to read a quote from um, William Gilmore Sims's Life of Marion. We've got these three biographies of Marion that were published between 1809 and 1844, and they are really what bring together this sort of, I don't want to call it the myth of Marion, but the idea of Marion, the ideal that people see uh, in, in Marion and, and the, the, the common understanding uh, that people seek inspiration from in Marion. Um, first is Weems, and he's a complete propagandist hagiographer. He uh, even even Peter Ory, who was his quote unquote co-author, said, "Man, you've really you've butchered my my history." Um, Eighteen twenty one, William Doby and James, who was a judge, who as a boy fought under Marion, writes a, a reminiscence, uh, a sketch. It's not very widely distributed, but it's considered to be very historically important because this is somebody who actually fought with Marion. So James is probably the most uh, reliable historical account. And then in 1844, uh, William Gilmore Sims, who's the first great Southern uh, writer, first great fiction writer in the South, sort of be, be like if John Grisham decided to write a biography of, of someone. I mean, it was a big deal. Uh, in 1844, uh, Sims, who had written novels about the American Revolution, decided to write a biography of Marion, and he did a pretty good job. He, you know, went to the sources that were available to him. Uh, he's a fiction writer, so there is some rom romanticization of um, of Marion in, in his campaigns. Uh, he repeats a lot of the stories that become the subjects of the, the art and the uh, mythology that we're talking about, but he, he grasps, I think, the the dilemma pretty well. Let me read you a quote from his <clears throat> his biography that I think is significant. Now, this is what he says. The fame of Marion rests very much upon tradition. There is little in the books to justify the strong and exciting relish with which the name is spoken and remembered throughout the country. 
In this respect, his reputation is like that of all other heroes of romantic history. It is a people's history, written in their hearts rather than in their books, which their books could not write, which would lose all its golden glow if subjected to the cold details of phlegmatic chronicles. So basically, he's saying, look, you know, Marion, the history of Marion's not history history. It's sort of history of an idea. And the idea that we see emerging in the art uh, that's on display at the museum is this idea uh, of Marion as the distinctly Southern hero of the Revolution. When you look at paintings like uh, Marion Crossing the PD, which is here uh, from the Ammon Carter Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, absolutely spectacular. I mean, I get chills when I stand in front of it. Uh, John Blake White's uh, Marion and Sweet Potato Dinner, and then another version of it that uh, uh, kind of helps tell the story by an unknown artist. Uh, w- um, William Washington's uh, Marion at Birch's Mill, which is down near what, what's now Pamplico. Um, these are all um, paintings that exemplify this ideal of Marion, but they exemplify a what I like to call a defensive war. That Marion was fighting not to promote liberty, but to defend his homeland against an aggressor. And as we get into the 19th century, and the South becomes wealthy uh, through slavery, uh, there's a real sense that we as Southerners are different. Our story is different. We're not out there trying to, to push ideals of, of liberty. We're, we've got our own way of life, and it's been defended ever since the days of Francis Marion. So great co- comparison that's made in this exhibit uh, between Marion's crossing the PD uh, and the famous Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, and Stephen, forgive me, the name of the artist? Emmanuel Lloyd. Emmanuel Lloyd's paints Washington crossing the Delaware the year after Marion crossing the PD. But there are wonderful companion pieces because when you look at Washington crossing the Delaware, there's Washington resplendent in his uniform. There's an American flag behind him. The, you know, he's at the prow of the boat, and it's really got this sort of sense of carrying uh, liberty, the fight for liberty and, and freedom and all the sort of ideals that are wrapped up in the revolution. Marion crossing the PD, as uh, has been said, looks like a bunch of guys coming back from a deer drive. Um, and they're dogs and, and bugles, and you know you have to really look hard to find Marion in the middle of this crowd of, of frontiersmen. And it's got a sort of understatement and a sort of self-possession. It's not pushing any ideas. It's not pushing any um, ideological arguments. It's just representing this group of people, this group of backwoodsmen who were defending their home and hearth from an invader. And I think that's the sense when you get into the 1830s with the nullification controversy, abolition becomes more of an issue in the 1840s and 50s. Southerners were looking for someone that they could uh, identify with historically and say, this is, this is what we fought for. Um, and indeed, during the, the secession um, movement, Marion is, is the spirit of Marion is invoked time and time again. So that's a, another way that story sort of played out. But so- it Stephen, I'm sorry. You continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just want to play off of the William Gilmore Sims quote. Um, so, yeah, Francis Marion uh, was legendary, right? The title of the exhibition is "Is Legend: Francis Marion in the PD." Now, the exhibition specifically focuses on that part of the Marion legend that occurred here. Francis Marion was well known in the Low Country because that's where he was from. He was well known in the Mid State. 
for his military campaigns there. But the core of the Marian myth, the Marian legend, happened here in this area in the PD. And uh, that's really central to the theme of the expedition. And that's that partisan period between August of 1780 and April of 1781. After April of 1781, ironically, Marian partners up, one of the most unlikely partnerships in military history, uh, with none other than uh, Light Horse Harry Lee from Virginia, Robert E. Lee's father. And they proved to be a very um, uh, compatible and very powerful team. And they, uh, under orders from Nathaniel Green, uh, set about reducing British outposts in what we have now call the Midlands, Fort Watson, Fort Mott. Uh, Marion takes on a whole new role, and then ultimately Marion is in the last great battle in South Carolina, Utah Springs, later in 1781, fighting as a, as a field commander under Green. So the period we're interested in and the period that resonates in our hearts and minds is this partisan period. This is when Marion's fighting with the militia. This is when he's camped on Snow's Island. This is where all the great uh, ideologically significant moments, uh, be they real or imagined in Marion's career, take place. But Ben, I understand the historical accuracy and the significance and the uh, you know, the, the, the artifacts of the paintings mm-hmm. that you want to depict his life and career, I guess, as a, uh, as a member of the military, you know, in the weirdest way, but, but I want, I want to ask both of you this, and I'm talking to Steven and, and Ben and Henry jump in here. If you'd like to me, he's always, it's, it's always been symbolic. He is a, an overachiever. He is an underdog. He is rebellious. I mean, I understand the historical accuracy or not. I understand, um, what he was or not. But could Southerners be somewhat captivated by the, the symbolism of, of, of the, the, the consummate overachiever, uh, the, the rebellious underdog? I mean, we, we Southerners have always kind of identified ourselves in that in that I, area. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't at all call him an, an overachiever in that sense. I mean, he's, he was indeed the underdog. Uh, Marion was also someone who very well knew his limits. Marion never put his men's lives at risk. He never, uh, when, when he didn't have to. He was very cautious. He was very circumspect. He was very limited. Uh, you know, he told Tom, <clears throat> Thomas Sumter, who was his um, fellow um, partisan commander and, and somebody that Marion despised, he told him, he said, uh, you'd wade through rivers of blood to get a victory. Marion wasn't going to put these people. These were ordinary people. These weren't professional soldiers. These weren't people who had signed up for this, so to speak. They were fighting, again, to defend their home and hearth. So Marion was always very careful and very cautious, never would commit his troops unless he had a pretty good idea that he could win because it, didn't, it wouldn't take but one battle for him to get knocked off. So he was a man who was very conscious of his limits. He was very humble, uh, but he was also a man of great honor and personal integrity. And several of the paintings in the exhibit uh, exemplify Marion at Birch's Mill, just down the road from yeah, your right. home in, in Pamplico is a great the the legend, especially as it is represented in these paintings, is less about Marion's military accomplishments as it is about his character. And in a couple of these paintings, like John Blake White's famous sweet potato dinner scene, Marion is in the center of the foreground. He's meant to be a, a central figure. So we have a misunderstanding. I mean, oh, well, what, I what, I, when I when I perceive the symbolism of Marion to be. Uh, the the ultimate contrarian and and the rebellious outsider and I mean have I missed it I mean is he that is that the essence well, the of Marion the legend or, certainly persists yeah no he was very much I mean Marion didn't want to be where he was I mean he had he enlisted in the Continental but who Army would? in all honesty he who was, would he enlisted in the Continental Army in 1775 fought at the Battle of Fort Moultrie was a colonel in the Continental Army throughout South Carolina Battle of Savannah Battle of Siege of Charleston and he um 
he wanted to have a traditional military career. He didn't want to be some backwoods partisan, but that was what was required of him. That was so great. I think Stephen's absolutely right. When you look at the um, the sweet potato dinner, of course, the sweet potato dinner, interestingly enough, throughout its history, it's it's painted, it's copied. Hold on to that. I don't want to get you. We got to take a break. We got to pay some okay. bills, but I want to come back and touch on the sweet potato dinner. We'll take a break. Ba- uh, take a break. Break sweet potato. We'll take a break. <laughs> we'll be back in just a second. 843-6610. I don't know why I'm giving the number. We're not taking calls. We've got some distinguished guests with us this morning. There's very few times that we use the word distinguished and wake up Carolina in the same sentence. Uh, ben, I, I've aggravated Ben and Henry for a while. Didn't know Stephen until today, but I've aggravated them a while to let's do a podcast together about Francis Marion. Um, I've, I've always suspected he's one of the most consequential figures uh, politically, culturally, societally, and in, in, in South Carolina history, particularly in the PD region's history. So Ben texted me, I think, Friday and said, we think we can do something sooner than later. We got together. Henry and Stephen made themselves available. And for the last hour, we talked about the life and legacy of um, of General Francis Marion, talked about the Francis Marion Trail Commission. <laughs> it being created by the General Assembly. Um, ben, I'll, I'll go to you for a second, then I'll go to Stephen. So, so has the General Assembly been, and because I want to help if I can, has the General Assembly been as supportive of exploring every vent or every avenue of heritage tourism in the Francis Marion? Um, have are there things they can do to help us be more successful? Not in marketing. That's a cheesy right. way to say it. Making known how mm. important Marion was. Yeah, well, certainly in the early years of the Trail Commission, the, the General Assembly and Senator Leatherman were very supportive, and, and we were well-funded and got a lot of work done. Again, that sort of petered out during the recession. Uh, I think there's, you know, we're doing better in terms of the economy and tax revenues, and I know Henry's work with the governor. Governor McMaster is hugely supportive of, of these types of initiatives, and, and this one in particular. So I know Henry has been working with Governor McMaster to try to get some some more funding, but uh, I think the opportunities there. I think the uh, interest and the the inclination is there on the part of our general assembly and our elected leaders uh, in general. Uh, I think you just got to have a way to funnel that. I think what Henry is doing and and Fred Carter and others to bring the trail commission back is a good way to sort of funnel some of that. Now the SC um, two twenty five, the two hundred twenty fifth anniversary of the um, of the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. Uh, that's been well funded. Their grants. We're now waiting on a, a seventy thousand dollar grant that uh, the Archaeological Institute of the PD has applied for to excavate what could be some spectacular Revolutionary War related sites uh, off the Old River Road near Pamplico that could have been burned by uh, one of the more consequential figures in the Revolution uh, in the PD, a guy named uh, James. Weems or Weems, it's W-E-M-Y-S-S. He was a, a British officer who was sent from King Street to Chiral. He marched 70 miles and burned everything within a 15-mile um, uh, in a 15-mile wide path. Uh, he was specifically sent when Marion got everybody stirred up in late summer of 1780. Uh, he was sent to to put down the rebellion in the PD. So Marion retreats, goes up into North Carolina for a little while to get out. You know, he couldn't take on a whole British regiment. So he, they disappeared. Uh, this fellow Weems marches uh, up uh, to Sherall uh, and burns every building between King Street and Sherall. Uh, notoriously hangs a ferryman from what's now Florence County named Adam Cusack. 
uh, did more to turn people to the American cause in the PD than probably Marion did. So we, we may have a Weems-related burn site. It's also a site that archaeological testing has shown has a strong African-American component based on the uh, artifacts that came from the testing. So we're waiting to hear from the SC-225 committee to see if we'll get the money to excavate this, uh, fully excavate the site. It could wind up being a major tourist attraction. So the money's available. I think the, the spirit's willing, but um, we just need a good way to funnel it. And, Stephen, the, the museum obviously is on board with, with, with articulating this version of history. Yeah, of course. So this exhibition is going to be uh, uh, up until the middle of August. But we have a permanent historical exhibition upstairs where we interpret the Marian story. The benefit of the exhibition is that we can focus in on a particular theme and we can expand the story and we can use all these artifacts that have been recovered in the archaeology along with these artworks that are on loan from major national art institutions to, um, you know, it's not going to be here forever. But it's an excellent way to look at Marion from this particular angle of myth and, and legend. So, um, you know, even if you're not uh, an archaeologist, uh, then I think this ex- exhibition will attract you with the art. And if you're, you know, if art appreciation isn't necessarily your forte, uh, then the archaeology certainly holds enough interest. Uh, and both of those things serve to tell both sides of the story. And, and Henry, the Trail Commission is, is kind of an apparatus that promotes and makes more people aware of uh, what Ben and, and Stephen are involved in. You've obviously become intimately involved in it. How can others help you? I mean, if there's somebody out there who wants to make a contribution, wants to be more involved, wants to be um, helpful in whatever way, shape, or form, I mean, how, how do they do that? Well, they can obviously give money, <clears throat> but just as important, just use it. There's 16 sites on this trail commission of significance that we've talked about this morning. And just going by to see those sites, they are being updated right now. We're putting out an app on your phone that as you go up to these apps or, I mean, these sites, or as you're riding to one site to the other, you can learn about um, some of the the things that Francis Mann did and what made those sites significant. There's terrific amount of information out there for the public. I think using it would be real a, a very good thing to do. But money is always important because it does take money, and the state is very supportive. But there's always additional monies that you really need. And Francis Marion's archaeological uh, to find those sites and verify them does take time and money. And Ben has been very diligent in doing that. Ben, when, when, I, when I go to a Springsteen concert, I know I'm hearing Thunder Road and Born to Run. Right. I don't know what else I'm hearing, but I know right. I'm hearing those two. When I went to my buddy's 60th birthday Saturday in Charleston, I knew there were going to be three or four stories told. Right. I didn't know the others, but I knew three or four that we always repeat. Probably get nauseum yeah. repeating these stories. Yeah. What, what are the three or four stories that you want to make people most aware of about the life of Francis. Well, I'll, I'll tell you another one that's represented. It's a, it's a Florence, what's now Florence County story that's represented in, in a painting, um, a study of which is in the exhibit. We don't have the full painting, and I'll, I'll tell you about that. But um, one of the uh, uh, paintings in the exhibit is a study for a painting done by an artist named William Washington uh, called Marion at Birch's Mill. And as you know, Birch's Mill is on the PD River, uh, 
I like to tell people it's behind the Delta Mills plant there near Pamplico, and it's a beautiful bluff over the river, and there was a ferry there, and uh, there was a mill where you'd bring your corn to grind. There was probably a store. It was a significant settlement starting in the uh, as early as the 1740s. Uh, Marion was in and out of Birch's Mill a lot during the war. It's right there on the old river road. Um, may have even been a little skirmish fought there, but Marion utilized the mill and the ferry a lot. Uh, at the end of the war, 1782, June of 1782, he camps at Birch's Mill for several weeks and sends out a proclamation. And this is historical fact. He sends out a proclamation to all the Tories east of the PD, and he says, come in. Uh, surrender, give your parole. I'll let you keep your firearms. I won't molest you, but you got to come swear that you're going to be loyal uh, to the American cause and not fight against us. So over the course of several weeks, people are coming across the ferry and, and shuffling into the camp and giving their paroles. One day, uh, a man named Captain Butler, a notorious, we're told, a no- notorious Tory, uh, comes into camp and Marion's men all kind of stiffen and they pull him aside and say, hey, boss, um, we know what you said about not molesting anybody, but we got a, we got a thing with this fellow, and you know, we're going to take him out back if you don't mind. And Marion said, absolutely not. I've given my word uh, I, I, that he will not be molested. I will protect him personally. If you want him, you got to come through me. But he had supposedly killed some surrendered soldiers in what was called the Lynch's Creek Massacre. Yeah, so Marion stands up for this guy against his own men because – that he'd given his word and he wasn't going to just summarily execute someone that gets made into a painting by William Washington, It's a magnificent painting. It's as big as the wall behind you. And when my father was in the state Senate back in the late sixties, it came up for sale and dad got the Senate to buy it. And they hung it outside the Senate chamber because Marion was a member of the state Senate at the time. Not a lot of people don't know this, but Marion was elected to the state Senate uh, at the end of the revolution. So he's serving as a state Senator and uh, fighting, uh, continuing to fight with his uh, brigade, uh, we asked that it be loaned to uh, the exhibit. It would have been perfect and the connection with Florence and all that sort of stuff. And we were told that the state house doesn't, state house commission doesn't loan artwork. So we were able to get the um, get the study for it, which is smaller, uh, but it's still pretty powerful. But that's one of those examples, uh, a story that's an example of Marion's. Um, integrity and his decency and it appears um i think it only appears in one of the biographies i think it only appears in um sims it may appear in james it doesn't appear in weems's biography but i like to think it's true because we know about that same time uh when the british are evacuating charleston you know, they leave charleston on december 14 1782 that's when the british finally left south carolina for good marion gets orders i can't remember who the superior officer was but he gets a, a note saying, um, we have intelligence that the British soldiers are filling butts, barrels with fresh water in the Cooper River to load on the ships to have fresh water for the, for the voyage home. We think you should go and attack them. And Marion says, I'm not going to do that. He said, I'll sooner, I'd sooner protect them doing that than attack them. He said, they're leaving. They're just trying to get what they need to get the hell out of here. Um, I'm not going to go attack them. So it was, uh, that sort of thing is very similar to what, you see in the Birch's Mill. But, but is that the curiosity that a lot of us have? How could a man so vicious be so decent? But he wasn't vicious. That's the thing. He was tenacious. He was a great fighter. He was a brilliant Was tactician. he into guerrilla warfare? I mean, he was into it because that's the only way well, he could it, fight. But, but did it require a certain degree of viciousness 
I mean, I understand, I mean, you I understand your point. Well, the, the, the piece I read you on the break from um, Light Horse Harry Lee, you know, where he talks about how he was you know, not attractive, his visage was not pleasing, and his manners were not prepossessing. And he says he was quiet, humble, you know, spoke very little. I mean, he was not a, a, a charismatic Some out-of-control maniac right. with a burning desire to right. kill people. Right, right, right. No, that, that, that's the opposite of Mary. Stephen, how important is it from the museum's perspective that, that we, the people of the PD and, and the state in general, understand more about this story? And how does the museum help facilitate that understanding? Well, I think it's important that we understand the facts of any anything historical. Right? And in Francis Marion's case, it's important because, as I said you know, at the beginning of the interview, uh, he was a background character throughout my life. And I think that he... It's that way for a lot of people. They're familiar with him, but they don't know the details of this exhibition and the work that we do at the museum to tell and interpret the Marian story. That's the public's chance to come and, and learn the truth about Francis Marion. You know, what's interesting to me about uh, him is that, you know, he was certainly significant enough that these artists took it upon themselves to focus on him and his story as a, a facet of American history. And anytime the museum can put our local stories into the larger context, I think that's when those real educational opportunities happen. And, and being in the story in general, one of the, uh, one of the most consequential figures in, in early American history is from here. I mean, yeah, it, well, I don't and, want to make it, it that sound that simple, but and, I mean, consequential both in his deeds and what he represented and what he came to be seen to represent. Um, I put it simply to people for 25 years, we've been sawing this log of Francis Marion, you know, promoting the Francis Marion story um, through some of these initiatives. And one of the sort of simple ways I put it to people uh, is that um, by 1780, there was a stalemate in the Northeast all the great battles, Bunker Hill, Saratoga, all those battles have been fought and there was a stalemate. So the only way that the British could win the war was by taking the South. Uh, when Marion came on the scene in 1780, the British were inches from taking South Carolina. And I think the argument is if the British had taken South Carolina, had consolidated their hold in South Carolina, uh, the war would have been over in favor of the British. Uh, what largely kept them from consolidating that hold was Francis Marion. So if Francis Marion hadn't been doing what he was doing between uh, August of 1780 and April of 1781 in what's now the PD, we probably would have lost the Revolutionary War. I don't think too many historians can can dispute that. They had us on the ropes, and Marion was able to keep give us a little bit of um, spring off those ropes uh, through what he did. And that's you a know, great— We've talked a lot about these early biographies, uh, but you know the Marian legend persists. There is, mm -hmm. you know, what we know about him uh, largely through the early biographies by Weems, by James, by Sims, uh, and there were there were later biographies mm. too. Uh, but there's also been some recent research. Um, there's a book published about eight years ago by a man named John Aller called Francis or called Swamp Fox: How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. Mm. So there's certainly, uh, you know, we talk about the resurgence of interest in Marion through the Trail Commission, but he's out there in other people's thoughts and ideas and research as well. 
And, and, and Henry, I guess, keeping that fluid and alive is right. part of the trail right. commission. And I think Ben's last statement about Francis Marion is the significance of him. That period of time and this in the time this country was at a stalemate in the north and their, their battle plan was to come up from the south. Had us on the ropes, Henry. Oh, absolutely. And he single-handedly did it. That's why and he's to, so famous. And to Ben's point, not with a bunch of trained soldiers, but rather a right. team of misfits. No, and I, I've, I've said this, um, you know, down at the statue dedication when we first really started this was the uh, my late friend Bill Chandler and I had a little get-together for interested parties at uh, Witherspoon's Ferry, uh, what's now called Venner's Landing in Johnsonville on August 17th, 2005. That was the, um, uh, what, what would that have been? That would have been the 225th anniversary of Marion taking command. Or, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was the anniversary of Marion taking command of the, uh, of the Williamsburg militia. And um, we had... Uh, some speechifying and everybody went to the to the vfw hut to have a, a few drinks afterwards um and one of the things i said bill Chandler told everybody to take the shoes off that they were standing on holy ground uh one of the things i said was that, you know we live in a world where um we think everything that happens is the result of great forces geopolitical forces that are uh driven by money and power and that sort of thing and no one in 1780, if you'd ask a man on the street in London uh, in 1780, would the British Army uh, be, in essence, defeated by a bunch of people living in a place he'd never heard of. Uh, they never would have. They never would have believed that. But I think it's a great sign that history can be changed by the most unlikely people in the in the most unlikely places and that everything we do can have significance beyond what we understand. The human spirit is timeless. That's right. That's right. Well said. Thanks to all three of you. Yep. We'll Thank take, you. we'll Thank take you. a break. Uh, we'll, we'll download this on podcast format, yep. right? Rev? We'll publish it tomorrow morning. Rev will have it um, up and running by 10. What do you call it? Produced? Published. Yeah, we'll have one published. Polished. Excuse me. <laughs> P- polished. It'll be a lot of polishing up. I thought drop was. No, well, that's, that's my word. His is published. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think you get paid more to publish than you do to drop one. Right. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. That, is, that interview or what back and forth will be produced in its entirety tomorrow at 10 mm-hmm. via podcast format. Am that's I right? right. Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll send it up and publish it tomorrow. Publish. Uh, at 10 a.m. tomorrow, that is the plan. It'll go out on YouTube if you want to see. We videoed it as well or on the audio podcast uh, platforms that we distribute on. Uh, you can go and find that information. If you want to get a link to all of those distribution points, it's no stoplights with KenArd.com. And we it. enjoyed that, right? Oh, man. So I know that's not typical talk radio content, but I was mesmerized. And I, and I would think that listeners were as well, just learning so much and, and history. And, and, I, and I consider it a, a bit of a free history lesson for, for myself. So I really enjoyed that. And I hope everybody did. Well, and, and I was on county council in 2004, and we began funding some of that. At about the same time, I was asked to help fund a statue at Venner's Landing by being, being, you know, help draft the original legislation that created the Francis Marion Trail Commission. Out of that came Heritage Tourism and I mean, I, I just think you got to know where you come from to know where you're going. And I think somebody as important as Francis Marion in our, in our lives, we should know as much as we as we possibly can. One of the interesting things we debated or Ben said uh, during the interview, Jeffersonian is not just a political ideology; it's a way of life. And I think knowing where you come from and understanding 
who contributed to that, you know, the, the way of life that you enjoy, I enjoy, Josh enjoys. Uh, it's always been explained to me. Don't know. I think Ben agreed with this, and he knows far more about it than I. Stephen and Henry both know far more about it than I. Um, when they were at stalemate up north and the south was in the balance, I mean, South Carolina was on the ropes. I mean, there is no doubt about it. All historical accountings say South Carolina was about to fall had it not been for Marion and his ability to, I guess, uh, military antagonization, if that's a, um, a proper descript. I mean, he just antagonized the British forces, got the best of the British forces, and, and the balance of, you know, be, being a, uh, I guess, a cone stole killer, but having the ethic and moral code that he had. You know, we invited these people. We, we gave them, you know, the right to surrender. They would not be punished nor killed. Um, they're getting water to go back home. Why do we want to upset that apple cart? I mean, let them get their water and go back home. A certain degree of pragmatism in some of the decisions that Marion had a big hand in making. Somebody's on the phone. Apologize for not having the phones open, but we really wanted to concentrate on our guest and the um, uh, the podcast slash interview that um that was on the radio will be on our podcast. Let's go to the phone. Jamie in Darlington. Hi, you're on the air. Morning, guys. <clears throat> I think, uh, Ken, I think you broke the record. Uh, for me holding on the phone, I, I waited to talk to um, another radio talk show host for about 45 minutes. This was about an hour and 15. But I wanted to tell these fellows, especially Henry and uh, Stephen and uh, Ben, something that I think would be very uh, attractive to the um, to the museum uh, in Florence. Uh, when was the, Ken, when was the last time you've been in the federal building um, downtown? Um, it is like trying to get into Fort Knox. You can't even take your camera and your phone in there. Uh, the parking's hard to get in there. I mean, it's just difficult to get in there. And there is a painting of um, the PD River crossing over the PD River by Blue Sky. And I was going to call the delegation about this, but I thought these three men could do a better job. That that ought to be moved from the federal building to the Florence Museum and put it in the uh, Francis Marion um, uh, um, area um, to give a, give the people a sense of crossing the PD and and it's just a gorgeous painting. It's got um, fireflies that light up and come on and off, and um, nobody sees that thing. Um, it's like, it, it would be like hanging the Mona Lisa in um, um, a, a building that's south of the border. Nobody's going to pull off and see it. Um, this thing is so beautiful, but no one gets to enjoy it. And I think it should be moved to the museum. So okay. Was- we'll pass that along, Jam. Appreciate the call, my man. And appreciate, um, I guess I'm, you know, we're, we're flattered. Jam hung on for us longer yeah. than he did. Some other um, unnoted, that. unnoted radio shows. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> he, he didn't say there. who it was. He held on forty-five yeah, minutes yeah. for, so we'll just we'll just leave it at that. Pro- I guess. Probably a more noted name than than yours truly. And, but I, and I think the only time I've been in the federal building, I've had jury duty called there once or twice. So. I don't think I've ever been. Come to think of it, I don't think I've ever been in the federal courthouse. Hmm. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, to respect history and believe in a higher power. Hey, man, that's that was awesome gathering there, Ken. Uh, Ocala, Florida is in Marion County. This is kind of interesting. I meet people in Florida 
the villages, well, I guess that's the greatest golf cart community of all time, is in Sumter County. And where do they get those names from? And they're literally, I think, about 16 counties in this whole country called Marion County. In fact, there's one in Ohio. I've been through there. I've been through one in Indiana, West Virginia. I think there's one in Iowa, Kansas. So they respected that man. Uh, so I give credit to that. You did a good job there. Uh, think about the Battle of Kings Mountain. You know, why do they call Charlotte the Hornets? Think about that. So these guys, they fought so hard back in the day. To And I don't know what they would think about what's going on today. But always keep in mind, uh, respect your elders and honor your father and mother. That's a commandment for the Father's Day. And I always believe in a higher power. And I think Francis Marion did a good job of that. You have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. I just think the discipline to continue to practice an ethic and moral code that you believe in in the most trusting or excuse me, the most trying and traumatic times imaginable. Um, that, that, that's a complexity. I mean, that, that's the, um, I mean, that's the human condition on trial. You know, you, 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 you got a certain thing you do to try and win a war, but you've got a certain code of conduct that you feel so obligated to. And, and I do believe, I mean, that that's people don't know that about Marion. Um, and you know what I've read the um the sweet potato dinner what was when they realized man if these if these cats can fight like they are I mean if they can sustain themselves under these conditions <laughs> we're, we're you ready you ready you ready for a good one on Monday morning we'll have more hell on our hands beating this crowd than you could ever <laughs> imagine <laughs> there's a real good one on a Monday a morning one. uh eight four three six six one zero nine three seven let's go to the phone Rodney in Marion hi you're on the air hey guys can you hear me okay yes sir yep. Listen, I just wanted to thank y'all for Friday when I was on your program for honoring the vets. But even a, a bigger point is that uh, I just, it was unbelievable the amount of calls and texts I got after that program. And my whole point is to say this to your sponsors. Uh, if they question for a moment, they get in value uh, for being a supporter of your show, put that to rest because it was really quite amazing at the feedback I got. So I wanted to thank you guys again and certainly your sponsors for uh your commitment to veterans ronnie thank you very wow. kind of you appreciate you, you being here appreciate your service to country and not just service to country ronnie's kind of guy that serves his community his neighborhood his area um you know we give and take we, we try to give a little more than we take some days i think i do okay at it other days i think i suck at it i take a lot more a lot more than i give uh interesting from marion Yep, you know uh, the mm -hmm. namesake of Francis Marion, um, and and look, I know what we do here is not hour and twenty thirty minute interviews. I mean, I, I understand that, but but I also believe there are certain opportunities that we have that we need to completely and totally take advantage of. And we had the chairman and founder of the Francis Marion Trail, the curator of the museum, and, and a guy who's really energized now. It is um, I want to say Henry's in the late fall of his life. I don't want to say winter because he may turn around come back and beat me up but the late fall of his life that really wants to you know see this issue um have more interest and 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 raise awareness about the life and times of francis marion um i do believe that once again history is critically important the proper interpretation of history it's interesting that somebody wrote a um 
the first bio or, or the yeah the first biography of of, of, of Francis Barry would have been a bit embellished. <laughs> I think they had him as um you know the the most consequential political and military leader in the history of mankind. I've always felt Marion symbolized rebellion, uh, underdog. Americans tend to like that. I don't think we like it as much as we formerly did. I think we still, uh, we, we like the underdog, the rebellion part. Interesting. I'll give you an, a, a, an unscientific analysis. You ready? I can Facebook. I don't do it much, but if I wish my wife happy birthday on Facebook, there are certain people that like it. If I say something a little bit controversial, I mean, it may not be political. I mean, it may be Father's Day. But if I say something a little bit edgy, I notice the people that like my happy birthday don't like that. And if you live that afraid of your own shallow, <laughs> then, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking to myself, wow, really? Okay. Um, you, you know where I'm headed. I mean, I understand when I get real political. I understand if I get red blood and red meat political. I understand someone say, nah, man, I don't want to be. I'll read it, but yeah, I'm not going to let anybody it, know I, I ain't liking it. it. I'll yeah. let him have at that. But, but it's interesting what we perceive to be rebellious today, what we perceive to be controversial today. And that really goes back to the condition to conformity. And what I think of, I mean, that, today's the day after Father's Day. I mean, was, was man a masculine man or not? I mean, did he demonstrate and exhibit some of the um, – the toxicity that, that society says we should be so guarded about. And, and we're, you know, um, hey, let's go find a proper sweet man to beat the British. No, let's go find oh, a yeah. badass. I mean, let's go You're find right. a badass to beat the British. And I think we live in a country that owes a lot to the badass, and we tend to give a lot more credit to the sweet, proper, you know, go-along, get-along butt-kisser that a lot of men have unfortunately uh, become. So, yeah, when I post something about my father, and it's a little bit edgy. I mean, it, it was. I mean, it was a little bit edgy and a little bit uh, incriminating of certain forces in, in the body politic. I mean, I intertwined. No, I intertangled. Um, <laughs> so you did. You did. I intertangled some politics. Good word. Some politics into that intentionally. But it's interesting to me how many people will like. Happy birthday to your son. Happy birthday to your daughter. It's so sweet and cute and, and non-offensive. Oh, no, he said. He said, uh, you know, the government, you know, nah, I'm not going to like that one. Nah, I don't want to get on that list. Wow. I mean, that's kind of sort of who we become. And um, I'd rather live in a single wide and a tobacco field than become that. I mean, I, you know, we talking about Marion and some of these founders. Did Were they willing to lose everything they had in the name of liberty and freedom and preserving that? Or basically, I mean, they weren't preserving anything. They were fighting for something they didn't have. And they, uh, and they, they were, they were – uh, Risking their lives. Yeah, to do sure it too. they were. I mean, under threat of treason from the king. I mean, we know the yeah. story, and and I'm just thinking about wow. If we become that, then I'm not as optimistic about our future uh, as I historically have been. Now, I didn't I didn't realize when I went to the phone that was Rodney Berry, who was our honoree on Friday, and I should have asked him. And Rodney, if you're still listening, you know you brought those fresh uh, vegetables and brought those tomatoes. Well, I found out that uh, Josh, I'm gonna call you out here. Josh gave away the <laughs> tomato you brought me. Uh, to somebody else before I had a chance to grab it and take it home on Friday. So, you know, if you're in the area and you've got another one with you. Um... Uh, okay, okay. I, I'm, I'm going to defend Josh. Okay. Ready? Of course, of course, with Josh. Okay, go ahead. You had a chance to take it home. You just didn't. I know. I know. You left. <laughs> and then you came back to get it. Right, right, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I come back late Friday and I see a tomato resting in the studio. What What am I supposed to think? Did you, did you say the tomato? He, he saw a tomato, a mater. 
<laughs> he saw a mater resting. It was just sitting there resting. And then, and then Josh said, well, this must be mine to give away, I guess, because it's just sitting there. <laughs> but he didn't want it to spoil and rot and, and go bad. I, I took mine and the squash home, I home with me. 843 <laughs> I'm just teasing you, Josh. You know that. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So Rev's got him upset with that tomato. <laughs> Rev's got him upset with that tomato. Sorry, got, got, got him sidetracked. <laughs> got, got him, um, wow, okay. Steal the man's tomato and goof up the music. Oh, Uh-oh. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> It'll be okay, John. Can I see demerits? Do I see demerits <laughs> and reprimands coming? Demerits. Yeah, I'm steering clear of Rev today. No. I'm steering clear well, you, of the Royal Rev of Radio. You didn't give away my um, today. It's time for Takes Mondays to Make Fridays <laughs> trivia. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of uh, Florence. Um, the correct answer wins you a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts, courtesy of our good friends, not at just Pepsi, but rather Pepsi of Florence, locally committed to the local economy and community. In the spirit of Marion, Francis Marion, if you will, um, the question will center around the Revolutionary War. In October of 1781, General Cornwallis surrendered where? 843-661-0937. In October of 1781, British General Cornwallis surrendered where? 843-661-0937. I think he surrendered to Washington. Yeah, it would have been Washington. Yeah. Not Marion. That would have been the other consequential general mm-hmm. of the Revolutionary War. Who is this? Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Yorktown. You're right. Yorktown. September, excuse me, October 19, 19 excuse me, uh, 19, 1781, <laughs> General Cornwallis surrendered to Washington at Yorktown, basically ending the Revolutionary War. Who is this and where are you calling from? Steve from Florence. Okay, Steve. Hang tight. We'll get you back with Josh. Um He's the one that's made in the trash. He'll, he'll be fair. <laughs> <laughs> he'll, he'll get all your pertinent information, and um, and we'll get you your goodies from Pepsi. I want to thank, once again, all of our sponsors. Rodney was very kind and complimentary to talk about some of the uh, some of the messages he received. We, we, we know that we hold our own to the marketplace, and you, you kind of ask yourself, what comes first, listeners or sponsors? Listeners. I mean, if I don't have any listeners or if we don't have any listeners, guess what? There, there's no reason to sponsor. So, I mean, it's, it's gainful employment. It's the free market. It's the private sector. We certainly understand um, how this works, and it all depends on listeners and sponsors in commercial radio, terrestrial radio, I think is what it's known as. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our, all of our sponsors, Henry Swink, is a sponsor of ours with McCall Farms. Been with us since the get-go. Uh, Pepsi, obviously, one of our sponsors. I don't want to start listing all of our sponsors because I'd leave somebody off and they'd find another radio show. We have a lot uh, of sponsor. long-time sponsors. Probably a good time to add to if you'd like to nominate somebody for Honor Event because this past Friday was our first one of our our program for this summer. It's uh, The website is honorofetsc.com. And if you go there, there's an entry form and you can... You can nominate someone to be honored on one of our Fridays here across the course of the summer, honorofetsc.com. And we'll get back to business as usual tomorrow. Um, Trump will make somebody mad today. Uh, The media will respond in hysteria, and out of that comes another ingredient for radio. I'll tell you the interesting part of this story right now, and I'm talking about the Republican primary. To me, 
the most interesting part of this story is DeSantis trying to gain some sort of traction. I mean, that's going to be an interesting story. I mean, he's a, he's a relevant candidate. He's in the 20s. You know, Trump's in the 50s or at least high 40s in most of these polls I see. So he's got to make some ground. And it's just very interesting. I mean, it's political science is what it is. And it's not looking back. I mean, it's what's looking forward. So if I'm at 25 and my chief opponent's at 50, I mean, I can't rely on the normalities of politics to get me there. I've got to do something a little bit radical, extreme. Um, now, Christie's doing what you would expect Christie to do, you know, trash Trump, blast Trump. I mean, he becomes more popular in the neocon circles. He becomes more popular with, with the media. And, I, you know, I guess Christie sees, but he has zero chance to be the nominee. But, but he does have a chance to ingratiate himself and gain favor with a certain never-Trump element out there. DeSantis is somewhere, I mean, he's in kind of a complicated place. He's the second choice of 45% of Trump voters. So he can't alienate the Trump voter. I mean, he can't say Trump is mud and trash and has let everybody down. He's got to be far more strategic in creating contrast. And it's just interesting to me that he's had these strategy sessions, and out of the strategy sessions have come a couple of interesting words. The most interesting word to me is disassemble. I mean, I've run for office, and I understand uh, as much as I appear to not be careful with my words, I understand at times you have to be. The word disassemble is a very intentional and interesting word. The Trump voter believes that, it, you know, the federal government should be disassembled, pulled up by its root and thrown in the Potomac. I think it's the way I, or Dave Baker posted on National Review. Um, <laughs> did I? I think you did. Yeah, t- t- take the rot and then pull it up by its roots and throw it in the Potomac River, so Good. says the Reverend Dave Baker. Um, I like it. Yeah, I like anonymity. Well, glad that, I said that. Yeah, anonymity is a good shield of defense. <laughs> didn't say that. I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. That was Dave Baker <laughs> right. saying all those crazy Who's things names on the, on the, on the uh, comment section of the National Review. But but we'll, we'll kind of get into that tomorrow. I got some data, some, um, some analytics. Some, that would be polling, folks. That would be polling the data. And analytics. I'm going to try to get a hold of Kaylee, see if we can come in in the next couple of days. But we'll get back to business as usual. Appreciate your patience. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.